Welcome to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring Coast to Coast AM from December 5th, 2001. From the high desert and the great American Southwest, I bid you all good evening, good afternoon, good morning, whatever time of day it might be in all 24 time zones covered by this radio program ever growing. Tonight, including a new affiliate, KTYX-FM in Natchez, Mississippi. I like that name, Natchez, Mississippi. Something about that. GM there, Margaret Perkins. Margaret, thank you for putting us on the air. I hope you don't regret it. It's a pretty strange show. But, boy, there sure are a lot of affiliates out there. <laughs> Glad to have you all. Glad you're along. First, the war news. Three American soldiers were killed and 19 were wounded in Afghanistan today when a U.S. bomb missed its Taliban target. The bomb carrying 2,000 pounds of explosives landed about 100 yards from the soldiers' position north of Kandahar, where the Taliban are making their last stand. Now, uh, officials are saying it's a mystery and they don't know how it happened or what happened. Well, I do. There's no mystery to it. When you call in an airstrike virtually on your own or so close, it happens. It's happened in every, every single war. Anti-Taliban forces battled guerrillas loyal to bin Laden with tanks, mortars, and whatever else they had today, fighting their way through remote mountains toward a cave complex where they believe the terror suspect is holed up. Now, so in other words, they're getting close, perhaps, uh, to Osama bin Laden in the White Mountain area. A B-52's laid down some carpet stuff with 250 and 500-pound bombs. Now, I keep asking the question, and people don't know what to say. Uh, and the question is simple. What do we do if we catch bin Laden? What do we do with him? Does he die on the spot? I mean, certainly that can be arranged, and you can imagine there could be orders that, uh, you know, would uh, would, in, would include that phrase, terminate immediately with prejudice or whatever. Do we bring him back, put him on trial? What, war crimes? I mean, what do we do with bin Laden? Nobody really knows what's right because of the apparent or possible, reper no apparent is more like it, repercussions if we put him in jail. Security and public health demands could cost states up to about $4 billion, that's serious money this year, uh, in protection against uh, bioterrorism of uh, one sort or another. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. Wow. The Dow has finally made its way to the 10,000 mark. We'll see if it stays tomorrow, but another very good day for the markets, both the Dow and the uh, NASDAQ. An escaped convict suspected of mailing hundreds of anthrax hoax letters to abortion clinics was caught at a copy shop in a Cincinnati suburb. Clayton, uh, Clayton Lee Wagner, one of the FBI's ten most wanted fugitives, was arrested after employees at Kinko's, all right, Kinko's, recognized him and called police. So apparently he, he, you know, would go to Kinko's to do his uh, dirty work send, you know, threats and messages and what have you, and somebody in, at Kinko's nailed him. Called the police, and they got him. Way to go, Kinko's. 
well, this is interesting. You may remember my visit to the Today Show on NBC <laughs> about the coming global superstorm and then the follow-up uh, interview that occurred about a year ago now. The Today Show this morning spent a couple of segments just on the weather alone. They showed scenes from one state in the mid-U.S., can't remember which one, with snow like you wouldn't believe. Not typical for snow, uh, you know, for this time of year, not even close. Then they showed lovely Buffalo, New York, where, of course, they get more snow than anywhere else in the world, except now they're expecting a high, or were, of 67 degrees, which is clearly a record breaker. And they haven't had any white stuff fall at all. No snow. No snow in Buffalo, but 67 degrees. It's a virtually unthinkable concept if you've lived in Buffalo or live in Buffalo now. The residents there seemed rather thrilled about it. Well, why not? Sure. We saw scenes of folks hanging up their outside Christmas decorations, wearing shorts, scenes of other lightly dressed folks casually strolling down sidewalks. The reporter did the segment on downtown Buffalo, did have a sweater on, but the sleeves were rolled up, and this was at 7 in the morning. The same reporter showed news footage of a report he did this month last year from Buffalo. At that time, Buffalo had blizzard conditions. Anyway, uh, says my uh, faxer, Brian in Kennewick, Washington, uh, Matt, Katie, and Al will come around eventually. So... Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think they're, uh, they're beginning to get uh, with the curve a little bit and recognize what's going on. If and when the coming global superstorm gets to be a miniseries, <laughs> I think you should go on the Today Show just again to say, hey, I'm not going away and either is the weather. Well, clearly the weather is in the middle of a very, you know, a very, very serious change. And uh, probably f as far as mortal man is concerned, the ones that are alive now, permanent. And then I keep getting, I'm, I'm getting a million of these. Listen. Hi, Art. Was listening in on Monday night. Heard one caller mention the problem he had with hearing voices prior to or when falling asleep. The caller mentioned that he could hear several hundred voices. And then, or just one voice calling his name, which would cause him to wake up. Since I have had the same experiences, I thought I should look it up on the World Wide Web, and it seems there are many, many others afflicted with this, in, in quotes, problem, and most of the psychological reference guides call it hypnagogic hallucination. Other sites associate these types of hallucinations with narcolepsy. However, I've only had one or two and sleep just fine the rest of the time. I can only think that it's an event triggered by stress or some other life issue or it may well be the other side trying to connect with us through this drowsy dimension. This drowsy, this interesting, and it is a really, we, we should have some sort of sleep uh, expert on the program to talk about this magical period of time between you know, when you're awake and thinking whatever thoughts you are, and that instant when you pass into sleep and, you know, lapse out of a conscious state, but in that little twilight zone, good name, twilight zone of a time. 
Oh, my, my. All sorts of magical, interesting things occur. We can move out of our bodies. We can see things we would not normally see. We can hear things we would not normally hear. And, of course, these psychologists have explanation A for that. You know, nice and neat. They call, they've got a name for it. But I'm not so sure at all. And I'm not so sure that they're sure either. They just write papers and have to publish or perish, and so they say what they say about it. But, you know, to me, it does seem possible that this little magical period of time is a time when communication with the other side or another side, we don't really know what we're talking about here, right, is possible, even probable. And so since Monday's program, when we got that call, we've had, uh, I, I don't know, I've just been flooded with these. I could read them to you all night long. People having exactly the same experience. Fascinating. <laughs> Let's try a call or two here. Open lines, balance of this hour. Then next hour, David Sarita and Dan Aykroyd, yes, the Dan Aykroyd, are going to be here. And they're going to be talking a lot about NASA. And and who knows what they're going to talk about. I mean, you get Dan Aykroyd on the air and David Sarita. David, we had on, last time we had David Sarita on, for the second time in the history of this show, the satellite connection went kaboot. It was really weird. It was historical. It was on an anniversary of the same event. And I sort of don't even want to talk about it. Anyway, tonight, David Sarita and uh, Dan Aykroyd in the next hour. This hour... Oh, very much open lines. First time caller line, you're on the air. Good morning. Hi. Hi. Where are you, sir? Uh, San Diego. Okay, welcome. Uh, thank you. You know, I have never listened to your program until after uh, 9-11, and I've heard it almost every night since then. you really got some very interesting subjects on there. You know, you're probably right in that uh, a lot of people like yourself um, were traumatized and couldn't sleep. Uh, after that event, uh, after the 9-11 event, and uh, I bet I got a lot of listeners that way, huh? One thing I want to bring up, you, you know, I keep hearing you talking about what to do with Bin Laden if they, if, if they catch him. Yes. I don't know if this has come up or not, but, uh, you know, truth serum, to have him uh, captured alive. Yeah. Uh, the truth serum and find out what he knows, not only about uh, the area he's in, but the other couple of countries we've been concerned about. So that was my only thought about that. In other words, and, and so for that reason, because of the intelligence you could get about uh, Al-Qaeda's plans around the world, yeah, sure, strap him down, inject him with some uh, irresistible juice. That might be helpful. Huh? <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you very much for the question. Now, that's an interesting. Now, there is a creative idea for you. Uh, well, uh, certainly the temptation is to want a quick piece of hot lead between the eyes. Uh, he would have the ultimate intelligence about what was going to happen, where it was being organized. Yeah, you know, he's really right about that when you think about it. 
you know, you want it, you want immediate vengeance, right? But a little truth juice might go a long way. Wild card line, you're on the air. Hello. Wow, Art, this is wonderful. I can't believe I got through. Well, yes, you have. <laughs> Where are you? My name is Denise. I'm calling from Tampa, Florida, listening on 970 WFLA. Of course. I cannot believe I got through. You're not going to believe what I have to call and tell you about. All right, I'm listening. The night that you did the Princeton thing? Yes. This is so weird. Oh, my God, my stomach is all sick. Um, I, I work at night, and I had, I had a Jeep Wrangler soft top. Mm-hmm. And I was listening, and I was—I I couldn't pull over and concentrate with everybody, but I was doing it, you know, as I was driving, and it was three o'clock in the morning. Right. And I had a tingly feeling while I, while I was thinking about it. So I did like I. I. Was a part of something. So did I. And a cat ran in front of my Jeep. I lost control, and it turned two times into a ditch and bounced off the utility pole. Oh my God. And I have no serious injuries, and I just feel like. I just feel like something was there protecting me, and it was just so incredible. And I've been dying to tell you this. I've been meaning to email you, and I tried to call a couple times, and I'm so excited that I was able to tell you. What happened to the cat? The cat lived. Isn't that wonderful? It is. So you, well, I'll be doggone. I have six cats at home. There's no way that I could not have swerved to miss that cat. No, I know. I'm, I'm <laughs> the very same way. There's no way I could hit a cat. I'd probably wreck my car. Yeah, it was, it was scary, and, and I just... I never lost consciousness, and I have I have some bruises left and some scrapes, but I'm just so lucky, and I, I just I really appreciate your show and everything that you do. It's just it really makes you think outside the box, right? That's the idea. Thank okay. you, and take care. Uh, yes, uh, thinking outside the box is indeed the idea. Trying to trying to imagine things that during the day you just can't spend time imagining and thinking about because there is so much more to this world than what we tromp around every day doing out of habit or even love or what for you know for whatever reason you do what you do at night things are calmer people are more reflective about their uh, their lives in these dark hours and you can begin to think of a few of the things that are probably much more important in the long run than whatever occupies your mind during the day's busy work. Wild card line, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, Art. Yes. How are you doing tonight? Okay, sir. What's up? Oh, I just thought I'd call and uh, ask you about a guest you had on there before. It was about that rocket man or whatever they call him. What did you call him? Uh, oh, yes, the rocket man, of course. Uh, the man 1997. Who's to, uh, the man who's going to blast himself into space, right? No, no, no. Oh, no? No, it was a different man. The one that you had uh, uh, was supposed to have made that engine and went down Area 51 in that? Um, now I'm not sure who you're talking about. Oh, it was in 1997. You had it on a while back, the best of. That is a while back. Um, hmm. Well, I wish I could help you out, sir, but I, I've had many, many people who fit the description of Rocket Man one way or the other. And I've also talked to, um, collectively, quite a number of people who have been at Area 51, including one last night. So I'm not exactly sure. This was sent to me, written actually, by Bruce Cameron. And uh, it's called The Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Daughter. Now, you, you think you've heard them, but these are new rules. 
So uh, thank you very much, uh, Bruce Cameron. When I was in high school, I used to be terrified of my girlfriend's father, who I believe suspected me of wanting to place my hands on his daughter's chest. He'd open the door and immediately affect a good-naturedly murderous expression, holding out a handshake that, when gripped, felt like it could squeeze carbon into diamonds. <laughs> now, years later, it's my turn to be the dad, remembering how unfairly uh, persecuted I felt when I'd pick up my dates. I do my best to make my daughter's suitors feel even worse. My motto? Wilt them in the living room and they stay wilted all night. So, I'll call out jovially. I see you have your nose pierced. Is that because you're stupid? Or did you merely want to appear stupid? As a dad, I have some basic rules which I've carved into two stone tablets that I've actually displayed in my living room. Rule one. If you pull into my driveway and honk, You'd better be delivering a package, because you're sure as heck not picking anything up. Rule two, you do not touch my daughter in front of me. You may glance at her so long as you do not peer at anything below her neck. If you cannot keep your eyes or hands off my daughter's body, I will remove them. Rule three, I am aware that it is considered fashionable for boys of your age to wear their trousers so loosely that they appear to be falling off their hips. Please don't take this as an insult. But you and all of your friends are complete idiots. Still, I want to be fair and open-minded about the issue, so I propose this compromise. You may come to the door with your underwear showing and your pants ten sizes too big, and I will not object. However, in order to assure that your clothes do not, in fact, come off during the course of your date with my daughter, I will take my electric staple gun and fasten your trousers securely in place around your waist. Rule 4, I'm sure you've been told that in today's world, sex without utilizing a barrier method of some kind can kill you. Let me elaborate. When it comes to sex, I am the barrier, and I will kill you. In order for us to get to know each other, we should talk about sports, politics, and other issues of the day. Please do not do this. The only information I require from you is an indication of when you expect to have my daughter safely back at my house. And the only word I need from you on this subject is early. Rule 6. I have no doubt that you are a popular fellow with many opportunities to date other girls. This is fine with me as long as it is okay with my daughter. Otherwise, once you have gone out with my little girl, you will continue to date no one but her until she is finished with you. If you make her cry, I will make you cry. <laughs> as a couple of more rules. Two more. I think I'll get to those after the break. I'm Art Bell. This is Coast to Coast AM. For my daughters. You're listening to Art Bell Somewhere in Time on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from December 5th, 2001.
listening to Art Bell Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from December 5th, 2001. Let's see, where was I? Rule 7, right? Those were the six rules, but there are actually eight. Rule 7, about dating my daughter. As you stand in my front hallway, waiting for my daughter to appear, and more than an hour goes by, do not sigh and fidget. If you want to be on time for the movie, you shouldn't be dating. <laughs> my daughter is putting on her makeup, a process that can take longer than painting the Golden Gate Bridge. Instead of just standing there, why don't you do something useful like changing the oil in my car? And then finally, rule eight. The following places are not appropriate for a date with my daughter. Places where there are beds, sofas, or anything softer than a wooden stool. Places lacking parents, policemen, or nuns. Places where there is darkness. Places where there is dancing, holding hands, or happiness. Places where the ambient temperature is warm enough to induce my daughter to wear shorts, tank tops, midriff t-shirts, or anything other than overalls, a sweater, and a goose down parka zipped to the chin. Movies with a strong romantic or sexual theme are to be avoided. Movies which feature chainsaws, however, are okay. Hockey games are okay. My daughter claims it embarrasses her to come downstairs and find me attempting to get her date to recite these eight simple rules from memory. I'd be embarrassed, too. There are only eight of them, for crying out loud, and for the record, I did not suggest to even one of these cretins that I would have these rules tattooed on their arm if he couldn't remember them. I checked into it, and the cost is prohibitive. I merely, <laughs> I merely told him that I thought that writing rules on his arm with a ballpoint pen might be, ink washes off after all, and that my wood-burning set was probably a better alternative. One time when my wife caught me having one of my daughter's would-be suitors practice pulling into the driveway, getting out of the car, going up to knock on the front door, he had violated rule number one, so I figured he needed to run through the drill a few dozen times. She asked me why I was being so hard on the boy. Don't you remember being that age? She challenged. Of course I remember. Why do you think I came up with the eight simple rules? Way. We have got a really, 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 really cool photo for you to see. If you'll go to my website, we've got a link to it. Uh, and it's, it's called, Why Did the Salmon Cross the Road? And here is, here's this salmon, uh, this monster of a salmon crossing the road. Now, there's been a little bit of flooding going on. It says, a male chum salmon tries to get across the Skomish uh, Valley Road to re-enter the Skomish River and continue its journey to the salmon hatchery upstream. The fish and the others along the side of the road seem to wait for the wake of a passing vehicle to make their dash across the road. And uh, this was a photograph taken uh, uh, by a Seattle uh, photographer for the newspaper there. And so we've got a link to the page, Seattle Times. Uh, Harley Solt, S-O-L-T-E-S, took the photograph, and it's amazing. God, it's amazing. Here are all these salmon waiting on the side of the road in some uh, a standing water uh, for their shot to cross the road. And here this guy is taking his shot as a car is coming down the street. And this is one big mama of a salmon. 
So they cross roads to get in streams, and we've got the uh, the photograph to prove it. Now, how do you get the photograph? Everybody's going to ask me. It's really a cool photo. Uh, you go to my website, artbell.com. You click on what's new, and then you make your cursor go up instead of down. When it goes up, you go to news, news and other websites, and it is the first listed link. Why did the salmon cross the road? It's worth seeing. I mean, it's an amazing, amazing photograph. Absolutely amazing. This fish is just wiggling his way across the road. I wouldn't believe this unless I've seen it for myself, and there's a whole line of them waiting their chance to go across. God, amazing. All right, uh, back to open lines. First time caller line, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, Art. Uh, yes. It's, it's great to talk to you. It's Jeff in White Plains, New York. Oh, welcome. Okay. Uh, I just want to say that uh, listening to your program has made uh, three years of law school evenings uh, go by quite nicely. <laughs> You're going to be a lawyer, huh? Well, if an environmental lawyer trying to protect the, uh, protect the nation's treasures out there. Uh-huh. But, uh, so you're going to be a poor lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> extremely, extremely poor, but uh, hopefully happy. Good for you. Uh, my, my question is regarding uh, shadow people, and uh, I've been involved in investigating um, people's sightings of, of ghosts uh, for, for some time, about five years. I've been involved with some organizations here on the East Coast. And um, what I've come across, I, I wonder what you think about it, is that uh, it seems that some of the, the top theories are revolving around what ghosts actually are, uh, are that they're actually imprints of energy on particular areas. Uh, what well, we spent homes. most of last night talking about. Uh, I don't, did you catch the program? I'm sorry, I didn't catch last night. Oh, my God, that was exactly what we were talking about, what, what a ghost, uh, the definition of a ghost is, an imprint or an actual consciousness. And, and uh, the answer would appear to be both. Correct. That's right. That's why, as, as far as I believe, I, I think there's there's two two categories, and uh, I, I think the, sha- the shadow people might um, be an extension of that first category of, of an energy imprint, because like a photograph, uh, there can be that negative image and uh, created okay, something okay. like you know that that there's a dark shape. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. Okay. Hold on. Uh, too many people called me, sir, and I've had now thousands of emails and uh, hundreds of calls about this. And too many people have said, when confronted, when, when somebody sees a shadow person straight on, okay. two things happen. One, they appear startled, and two, they take off like a bat out of hell. Oh, so, well, that changes everything then. Yeah, you know, it, it would seem to. Yeah, that, that's uh, I, they're certainly one of the most frightening people that I've heard, I've collected many stories and, and spoke with many people, and uh, these shadow people seem to scare people more so than any other uh, specter or uh, paranormal experience. So. Well, uh, and there are so many of them. One has to wonder what percentage of us might become shadow people. Yes, uh, in our in our time after. Uh, here on Earth, uh, I don't know if that's the way I want to spend my time, but <laughs> I, I very much appreciate your call. Sir. Okay, thanks. Yeah, that does. You see, it does change everything. It indicates there's a, a, some sort of a, a consciousness, some sort of intelligence to be recognized, and then to flee uh, requires. Well, you know what it requires. It says a lot. Uh, wild card line. You're on the air. Good morning. 
Yeah, good morning, Art. How are you? I'm okay, sir. Where are you? I'm in uh, Wilmington, Delaware, enjoying this wonderful tropical weather. Yeah, I hear it is rather unusually Amazing. balmy, huh? Yes, indeed. I've been out in the garden quite a bit today. <laughs> well, bit you know, if our weather really is profoundly changing, sir, people like yourself in normally cold places really are going to, for a little while, in the short term, they're going to love it. Right. I'll, I'm with you on it. I, I uh, met you in New York at the... Uh, at the book signing. Oh, in New York course. City, yeah. yes. Met, uh-huh. uh, you, you and your wife and Whitley, and it was it was just great. Uh, I got a couple books signed, took a lot of pictures, sent you a few pictures, so that was kind of nice. Uh, Thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, had a couple interesting experiences. I've had a lot of them. I'm a registered nurse. I work at night, long-term care, helping people at the end of their life. I remember you. Oh, good. good. <laughs> How's Taking that? Many, many pictures, yes. <laughs> I've got plenty more. I'm going to have to send them to you. Uh, well, let me tell you a couple things that have happened recently. Um, being on the East Coast and so close to D.C. and New York, I've had uh, the opportunity to pass uh, both sites. And the first one was the Pentagon, and that was uh, pretty, pretty amazing, just amazing. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that happened, uh, being kind of lost because of the, the, the way the traffic is rerouted, I happened to pull off into what I thought would be a service road, and it was uh, blocked off by a, a guard shack. Oh. And immediately, my wife and I were immediately, uh, there were a big black sedan and a big black car immediately mm-hmm. on our tails. It was mm-hmm. very frightening. Now, the scary thing about the whole thing is, just before we left home in Wilmington, we got on 95, had a major gas leak. Our fuel line had had disconnected, and after we settled down after our close uh, encounter with mm-hmm. uh, with our fearless government, uh, we, we kind of thought how terrible it would have been if the gas line had come apart at that moment. Mm-hmm. That's not something that we <laughs> kind of uh, want to have happen. And then uh, I took uh, my wife and I were in uh, New York. We had to be up there. Well, we had a friend that we lost in the towers. Now and, uh, I don't. I don't want to cause you to think thoughts you haven't thought otherwise. However, has it occurred to you that there could be any relationship at all between your encounter with the, we'll call them the Men in Black, uh, and your broken gas line? Well, they would have had to know that we were on our way down there. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, anything's possible. Mm-hmm. Anything is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in New York, uh, that was I, uh, uh, just, you know, the, the smell, the sense of the spirit, the very spirit in the whole area is, it's just, it, you can't put it in the words. It is uh, one of the saddest experiences I've ever had in my life. And... Uh, you know, I took photographs. Of, you, you know the camera that I had. It can really get in there. And I took a couple hundred photographs. And uh, out of all those photographs, with a 20-power uh, lens, I saw one object that was recognizable, and it looked like either a desk or a tabletop. All right. Well, uh, uh, do me a favor, if you would, please, thank you, and send some of those photographs as well, as well as uh, any of the earlier ones you have. I would uh, really appreciate that. Oh, yes, I know. We uh, have a set of uh, exclusive Ground Zero photographs up on the website that are astounding, simply astounding. The whole thing is astounding, and I suppose this event is going to be imprinted on the American psyche uh, the way Pearl Harbor was. 
it's certainly it's going to be in that category and it's happened in your lifetime and succeeding generations will speak of this as we now speak of uh, Pearl Harbor no question about it it was the day America changed forever you know nothing is ever going to be the same uh, east of the Rockies you're on the air good morning hello hello Hi, Art. This is Barb from Meadville, Pennsylvania. Yes, Barb. Uh, about David Blaine. Um, the uh, the man who the magician. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is amazing. And after now, you now, 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 dear, dear lady, I must ask you. Uh, I, I did you see him do this? Yeah. All right. The, the reason I, here's why I'm asking. All right. This is really important now. I've got uh, a guy on my website who sent a video. I don't know whether you saw it, but uh, he simulates what Blaine did or what he thinks Blaine did. And by God, it looks like he's levitating. Now, to me, it is kind of a giveaway the way he's standing. But uh, if, if you were really an eyewitness to David Blaine's levitation... Right out on the street in broad daylight. And you're absolutely certain that one toe was not touching the ground... No. Are you sure? Both of his feet, his entire feet, was off the ground. You're sure? You had a a view that allowed you to see the front of his feet. We all did, yeah. All of us in the group did. See, that's why I'm I'm so interested. But the trick he did on me, I I have spent so much time trying to figure out how he did that, and I cannot. I cannot. And what was it? He did. Well, um, he does street magic. Right. And uh, and he uh, it's always in broad daylight. Right. And all he has with him is a cameraman. And and so and he's standing two he stood two feet away from me. Yes. And uh, I was with two women in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And, and he walks down the street, and I knew who he was because I've watched. Uh, Programs about him before, and I, I recognized. All right, so what did he do? Um, he he walked up to us, and you know, excuse me, uh, can I do something with you? And uh, my one friend, she was going to say no, and I said, of course you can. Sounds like a pickup line. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, so he picked me. He honed in on me, and he said, uh, do you have a piece of paper and a, and a pen? And I said, sure. And I fished it out of my purse and. And he said, uh, would you write your name on the paper, please? So I did. And I, uh, he, he tells you not to let him see it. Right. And uh, I wrote my name. And uh, he says, uh, w- will you hand it to me? And I did. Now, now he touched my hand and I touched his. Right. But uh, I was no more than two feet away from him. And um, he held it in his hand and... He put his hand down, and I was watching his hand the whole time uh, to see what was, uh, how he was going to do this. And uh, he says, do you know where the paper is now? And I said, no. And he says, uh, will you check your shoe? What, what? Your will you shoe? take off your shoe and look inside of it? Yes. Now, I didn't. I did not have my shoe off while he was standing there. Oh, I understand. And I, I, I had loafers on, and I slipped my shoe off, 
and uh, there was a piece of paper inside of it, and I picked it up, and it was my name in my handwriting. <laughs> and I don't know how he... Now, 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 during, you're, all you're, the, uh, now during all the time, that uh, from the point where he received this piece of paper from you... He didn't in, bend down. He didn't bend That's what I was going to ask. He didn't and bend I didn't down. bend down. And now all your five senses tell you that this is impossible. <laughs> that's right. And yet your common sense says he had to have done it somehow. Yes. And it was my handwriting. Uh-huh. And that was inside my shoe, and my foot was pressing down on my shoe all the time. I don't know how it got in there. He's amazing. Well, you maybe, don't want to see another maybe, magician. Maybe it was mad. Maybe it was magic. I mean, <laughs> look, there's always going to be people there's out there. There's no such thing as real magic. How do you know that? It's all illusionism, but I don't know but, how but, it But goes. how do you know that for sure, ma'am? Oh, I know. I'm how a realist. I'm in my right mind, Art. Oh, ma'am. Uh, I'm is... not five years old anymore. No, there is real magic, though. It's not that I, most magicians are just that. They're magicians, illusionists. And he may be, too, for all I know. And I, and I did see him levitate. Well, then how can you say there's not magic? And no, wait, wait, answer that. If you, the first thing I thought of... Hold it, hold it, hold it. You just said you saw him levitate, and, and you said it without question, and I asked you, are you sure you had a view of both feet? Now, if that isn't magic, what is it? And the first thing I thought of was air. He's using, yeah, air, air be beneath his feet. He's using little air jets or something inside his his trousers. And there's no sound. <laughs> I don't think so. So you don't hear air hissing. I don't think so, ma'am. Magic, magic, magic. No, no, no. Well, all right, uh, all right. See so you. So, in other words, this lady saw it for her own, saw it with her own eyes, right? I'm only questioning what she told me. She told me, without equivocation, this man levitated. She knew it. She saw it. But oh, there's no such thing as magic. Well, if he really levitated, then there is too magic, right? West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, Art. This is Diane from Loomis, California. Hi, Diane. Hi, and um, I'm listening to you on Talk 650 in Sacramento. KSTE, of course. Yeah, and I remember back um, oh, well, quite a while ago, I guess, you talked about how some people were having memories that possibly uh, Nelson Mandela had passed away when he was in prison. You bet, and memories of other things that never, uh, well, that as far as we know, historically never actually happened. Okay, well, when I heard the Nelson Mandela part, I said, you know what, that does sort of sound familiar. Huh. But today I have the same exact feeling come over me. I was watching, I think it was Access Hollywood or... Extra. I can't remember which one it was. Right. And they were talking about Robert Duvall's new movie. And I said, I thought he died. And I remember watching a special about him, and it was showing all of his different roles. And I remember saying to my fiancé, oh, that was my favorite role when he played an apostle, because I thought that was really awesome. But I swear I remember. Well, here's the thing, ma'am. Here's the thing. If time travel is real, most of those who say it would be possible say that if an event were changed, the world would continue. Uh, there'd be another little bubble created, and everything would continue uh, down a completely different road, and that there would be as many of these alternate uh, 
uh, universes created as there have been tamperings with time. So I remember Dr. Kaku saying that. There you are. So so maybe that's what, but, but still you might have a vague remembrance of what really did happen in another timeline. Listen, I, I've got to go. The show's okay. We're going to be talking with uh, Dan Aykroyd here. In a cool. All right. Thanks, Art. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Dan Aykroyd and David Sarita coming up next on Coast to Coast AM. I'm Art Bell. You're listening to Art Bell Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from December 5th, 2001. Premier Radio Networks presents Art Bell Somewhere in Time. Tonight's program originally aired December 5th, 2001. David Sarita and Dan Aykroyd are here, and they'll be here in a moment. David Sarita, last time he was on the show, we had a magnetic anomaly occur that took out all land-based microwave and satellite signals, including my satellite signal, the one that goes to the network. It is the second time in the history of this program that ever happened. Something took us out, and I think intentionally. David Sarita, born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, was first introduced to meditation by his dad, Dr. Lynn Sarita, psychology UC Berkeley, when he was 13 years old, began a deep and lasting quest to find God and the answers to many of life's most perplexing questions. He's met and studied with many Hindu, Buddhist, Native American, and Christian teachers while maintaining a daily meditation practice for 17 years. David worked mainly as an environmentalist has planted over 900,000 trees, wow, in British Columbia, Canada, helped to clean up oil spills, direct the uh, L.A.-based Tesla Foundation, which prompted scientific discoveries for a better environment, president of the uh, Green and Blue Corporation, trying to bring eco-technology projects to private investors and corporations, president of High Energy Micro Devices, a small company developing leading-edge technology for the detection of buried landmines. You know who Dan Aykroyd is, right? For over two deco- uh, decades, Dan uh, has brought his brilliant, comedic, dramatic style to films and TV, born on July 1st, 1952 in Ottawa, Canada. Aykroyd had four years of undergraduate study at Carleton University in Ottawa in the fields of psychology, political science, and criminal sociology. In addition to those pursuits, he was also active at, uh, in the university's Sock and Buskin Drama Guild. 72, he went into show business. You know what he's done. 75, Saturday Night Live, uh, Dan helped to forever change the face of TV, forming the Blues Brothers Band with John Belushi. The two recorded their big hit Briefcase Full of Blues album in 79, starring in the hit comedy feature The Blues Brothers, and embarked on a live 10-day tour. Uh, and the Made in America Live album, of course, duo also appeared in Steven Spielberg's uh, 1941 and Neighbors, <laughs> movie Neighbors. Uh, Aykroyd's uh, uh, screen acting career has included starring roles in Trading Places, opposite Eddie Murphy, Ghostbusters 2, in which he also, uh, which he also originated, by the way, and co-wrote Spies Like Us, again, an originator and co-writer, Dragnet, co-writer, and Coneheads. Coneheads 
is one of my wife's favorite movies of all time. She watches it over and over and over and over. Other films credits, uh, you, you know them, uh, Dr. Detroit, The Couch Trip, The Great Outdoors, My Stepmother is an Alien, Loose Cannons, My Girl 2, North Exit to Eden, Tommy Rowe and Rainbow. We've guessed our appearances in Into the Night, Twilight Zone, the movie, and Caddyshack 2, of course. Great movie. In 1986, Aykroyd produced the feature film One More Saturday Night for Home Video and Cable Markets, and you might be asking, why is Dan here tonight? In a moment, uh, you'll find out. Uh, David Sarita, are you there? Yes, I am. Art. David, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me back, Art. Uh, you bet, and thank you for... Uh, by the way, the last time you were on, David, that was uh, easily the second strangest thing that has ever happened on this program, and I personally believe it was intentional. Well, you mentioned uh, the following couple of nights that there could have been an NSA national security um, connection, and in that letter that you read, it stated that these scientists that I had been speaking to at NASA that I personally know quite well would never be speaking to me so openly in the future. So I decided to test that theory. And? And I contacted Dr. Newth at NASA um, and many of the other scientists at NASA and, and really asked them a very simple question, nothing really about UFOs, just a very simple question, and, and they ignored me. I didn't get one answer. And normally my answers come within 24 hours. Yes. And even a month later, none of five scientists that I wrote ever spoke to me again. So that made me very, very suspicious. Uh-huh. Well, uh, you have brought with you Dan Aykroyd. Dan, welcome to the program. Hi, Art. Thanks very much. God, it's great to have you. Wonderful I... to be on. Uh, of course, I'm an avid listener. Uh driving across country uh, through the desert, through the great uh, southwest of America, listening to your program is one of the peak experiences of life. Well, that, that is the way to do it. At, at night, it's dark. You're on a road without many other cars, and this kind of program will get right inside you. It's really, uh, it's, it's really wonderful. I've had people with me, and we've been wrapped and just gripped uh, for, for you know, the hour or two that we've been able to receive you in that. Okay, you're going to be doing a program kind of like this, aren't you? Well, it, it, one can never do a pro program of the scope and quality of the Art Bell Show in any medium. I don't. I don't think. Very kind. However, I am. I am attempting to catalog uh, on video on the Sci-Fi Channel and and uh, treat with uh, you know the, the proper degree of respect and uh, and humor and perhaps skepticism uh, some of the theories that have been put forth and that will be put out there, which is the name of the show. Uh, by the leading experts in the fields which I've been interested in, I guess since uh, being being a teenager and being exposed to my my father's and my family's interest in supernatural and, and and paranormal occurrences. Now this ranges from healers to the apparition at Fatima to religious uh, rapture to spontaneous combustion. All of the things are basically that that, that in, you know that interests us. Uh, yes. As as. As folkloric inquirers, I'm not a scientist, and, and I'll never say I, I am, but I, I am an entertainer, and it is entertaining, and, it, and I am a folkloric researcher. And uh, so under that uh, sort of umbrella, I think I'm, I'm going to be able to, uh, to make some very interesting inquiries and have really fascinating guests on uh, and hopefully open up uh, 
to, to get some answers and maybe look where we're going in the future as a species, as, as, a, as a body of spirits, uh, and point to maybe the fact that there will be some positive revelation that will affect mankind uh, in, a, in, a, in a good sense, and God knows we need it today. So you'll probably uh, touch base with a number of guests I've had on the program. Uh, no doubt, uh, of course, uh, and we'll get them on, on camera there, and uh, I, will, uh, I, I will attempt to open up to the sci-fi audience, which I imagine, you know, it's, it's about 700,000 people, mm -hmm. we estimate, uh, you know, given their, their current ratings, uh, uh, some of these ideas, and, uh, and, and hopefully expose some of these people, too, to, for commercial purposes, so they can sell their tapes and books and, sure. and, and get a living uh, out, out of the way that they've devoted their lives, like Stephen Greer and Linda Moulton Howe. You know, they've devoted their lives to, to, to this. They and, sure uh, have. They should be compensated uh, for, their, for their efforts and for their continuing research, and I'm, I'm happy to plug stuff like that. Uh, All right. Uh, before we dive into anything pretty, and we've got a lot of serious stuff to dive into, the, the one question I really do have for you is, um, when, when you made Ghostbusters 2, did you have a lot of fun? Was that fun? I had a lot. Well, I made both uh, one and two uh, with Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. Right. It was brilliant, brilliant. Uh, you know, he's uh, he's into Velikovsky and and uh, those guys, and you know, he knows he can talk talk about Madame Blavatsky and the false spiritualists. I mean, he's brilliant. And then Billy, a brilliant comedian. Ivan, a great director. Uh, myself, uh, we were this pool of talent that came together at a very special time, and. I mean, I know it's work. It's work. But at the same time, it really did look like you must have had a lot of fun doing it. I always have fun when I work with, uh, <laughs> with, with those guys and, and Murray and, and Ramis. Uh, it was really great. We, you know, took over New York or a good part of it for, for that. And then we built on the Columbia Soundstage in the valley there for perhaps one of the biggest sets that have ever, have ever been constructed. We had the whole, the full, full soundstage for the top of the building in the, in the first movie. And, uh, it was uh, it was great to have their resources behind us and um, and, and to uh, you know just to come to work and, and and see that anything you write can be created if you have enough labor time and money. <laughs> you know, see the, the terror dogs there and uh, you know the, the Slimer model and Mr. Stay Puffed. It was a they had a small person walking down Broadway. He was about four foot tall and they had a scale model of Broadway uh, there. You know, and these these were just. Just wonderful days. And, uh, when, when you were, you know, it must be hard. Uh, and here's the other thing I w wanted to always ask about. When you were firing your weapons, uh, and you did that many times at, at various apparitions, uh, obviously when you made the movie, you had to sit there firing the weapon without anything really coming out of it. Uh, how, yeah. do you, how do you learn to do that? Well, I, you know, actors can... Act. They, they they can uh, they can pretend and believe that uh, that there's there's uh, you know some kind of an entrapment uh, particle uh, beam coming out coming out of the, the 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 instrument. But for most of it, Ivan would just you know if there was an apparition we were pointing at, he would he would he'd be up on a stepladder way up high with a grip spotting him, and he'd be waving a pie ah. plate at us. Ah. <laughs> That's your apparition. And, huh? Yeah, that was you know. Um, uh, of course, uh, he, you know, it, it takes direction too. You know, he's going to say, you know, uh, you know, you're slack jawed, you're, 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 you're wide, you laugh, you're nervous, you're, you're scared. You want, you know, he, he would be, uh, you know, basically talking us through all the emotions and then he picks it later in editing so that 
the, the most genuine reactions are, are used. Then know? how cool is it later uh, to see the, the finished product and see how right it all was? Well, it's a miracle how movies get made. In the it is. Place. You it have 150 is. people coming together for three months, uh, all of different trades. Uh, it's still a business that hasn't changed since 1928, since sound came in, because you have the picture recorded separately and then the sound recorded separately, and it's all married later. That still hasn't changed. The lighting essentially hasn't changed. There's new types of lights and uh, and uh, and trucks and that, but uh, but basically it's uh, it's the same te technologically really, except there's video assist now and editing is done on, on video. But the way a movie shot is essentially the same as it is in 1928. You have this primitive system. You have, uh, you know, uh, still, I believe, negatives sometimes are being cut by a negative cutter with white gloves, you know, and, uh, you know, you have all these different trades contributing. It takes a long time. You, you have a, a star actor working for uh, a week or two, and then the, that actor might go away for a week and come back. You know, you hope nothing happens to them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's amazing how these, these films have come together. And I've just been gratified to have worked with the best people in, in, in my career. I mean... My success is due to the people I've, I've, I've worked with, and uh, it's always uh, always great when you when you sit in that screening room and uh, and uh, or with an audience even better, and, and and all the jokes are working and all the moments are working. That's uh, it's uh, you know the peak of creativity and uh, and I guess satisfaction as a as an artist. Yeah, you really know when you're on, don't you? Um, well, you 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 hope you know when you're shooting it, and then you know. There, uh, depending upon how it's been executed, and everybody has, if everybody has the same vision, all those moments uh, connect. Yeah, but you can feel it when it's clicking. You can absolutely feel it. Feel it in, a, in, in an audience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, that's right. the personal experience of really feeling a performance click is when, like, doing music. You know, you come out there and you rip into a song, and then the audience is up on their feet and they're there till the end of the concert. And uh, Jimmy Belushi and I have been doing that quite a bit across country for various corporate private charitable events so that immediate that immediate feedback yeah that's that's really great it's harder to do harder to tell in a movie but uh, uh frequently it, it 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 does connect and uh well all right uh somehow you got involved in the serious side of this uh you met um I don't know how you met David. Uh, in fact, you might tell me how you met David, and maybe that'll explain how you got involved. I don't know. Uh, we met through a mutual friend uh, in, uh, in in L.A. Um, who is doing uh, a really interesting documentary cataloging all of the elders, uh, spiritual tribal elders in North America, the native elders who are left, getting their wisdom, getting their images and visages oh. on, on camera. Oh. And um, she is a native... Uh, uh, Canadian, uh, an Aboriginal Canadian, uh, from one of the, the tribal bands up there. Uh, David, uh, is that, uh, not the Dene? It's the Stolo. Stolo, Stolo, yes. And yeah, so, uh, David is a colleague of hers, and, uh, I guess we, we, we met just to kind of hang out in LA at the House of Blues, and then, uh, and, and, um, uh, she told, uh, me that, that David had some interest, uh, in, in subjects that I, I was interested in, and then we, we got to sitting down and, of course, shared all the common references uh, about UFOs and uh, and UAPs, uh, among other things. David is very, I would say, spiritually advanced, uh, very healthy, uh, and I need some of his DNA. <laughs> uh, I I once did a, a program. By the way, Dan, if you're on a portable phone, you need. I'm to not be... actually. I'm uh, I'm on the the. the uh, Maybe I'm on the landline here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm hearing a little. Sh 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 
I, I know. I'm not sure what that is. From I don't. I hope it's not on my end here. More actually, that could be in my end. I, I'm sitting next to a computer here. Maybe I should turn it off. Uh, turn it off. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, why not? Give it a try. Uh, listen. Uh, I did a program. It was very arduous. I had uh, a number of Hopi elders on the program, and um, it had to be translated. So that that made it kind of arduous to listen to. However, what they had to say. Oh my God! What they had to say was a little worrisome. Uh, they, were, they said they they would normally never speak in public. They would never come on the air. However, uh, times were so urgent and time is so short that they felt compelled to come on. And I, I wonder what you have heard from other elders. Either one of you. Well, working with uh, Miss Sean Muscle on the the Native Elders Video Library Archives, which is uh, which is how Dan and I had met. Um, basically, the idea of the project is that Native elders transmitted most of their spiritual knowledge in oral teachings. They didn't really write things down. And today, there are very few elders alive who really have kept an accurate record of, of ancient teachings. Right. And a lot of the, the, the very sacred elders are passing away, and a lot of the younger generations are getting so distracted by the modern world and a lot of the difficulties Yes. Modern life, they're not spending the quality time they used to spend with their elders. Yes. And uh, the idea of her project is to is to video archive the elders' words in oral teachings at great length, not like a normal documentary film, but at great length, and preserve them in a video library so that future generations can learn from them of all nationalities. Did they, uh, in, in listening to all of that, though, did they have anything to say on a large... Um worldwide scale that, that you found either interesting or worrisome? Well, extremely interesting. I mean, the Hopi Indians are, are so advanced in their ability to, to, to store and accurately uh, transfer ancient knowledge for so many generations. I mean, they basically tell us, as we have been told by Robert Ghostwolf, that we're now in the fourth world, that we've done this four times. We've reached this same peak of civilization and technology and three times in a row, we chose the wrong road, and because we chose not to live in harmony with nature, the earth, in a sense, had to protect itself and, and temporarily destroy mankind, humankind. Yeah. And, and those elders would receive visions, just kind of like the same way Noah received a vision of God, and, and, and they would preserve the people and, and hide in the high mesas in the mountains, and, and many other tribes have the same type of stories. And then the world would go through another great cycle. The Hindus also say the exact same thing. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence now when we consider uh, the discovery of Atlantis and, and the new the new story about uh, what was discovered off the coast of, of Miami. And oh, my God, was, what a story that is. Yeah, we're seeing evidence of what the Hopi elders were saying. We're, we're not just, it's not just a myth anymore. Also, in India, they have discovered a site, and I can't quote the exact location, but they found a city that is covered by two... Two or three inches of radioactive ash that's over 12,000 years old. And, and we wonder how could an area that large be surrounded by a radioactive layer of ash 12,000 years old? The only answer would be a nuclear explosion. And we go into the Mahabharata and the, the Hindu Bhagavad Gita, we learn of a war that was very similar to Armageddon 5,000 B.C., 5,000 years ago or 5,000 B.C. Do, do both of you think that the human race could handle understanding that others have been here 
uh, with uh, almost uh, virtually all of the evidence of their existence uh, almost erased, almost not quite erased. Do you think the human race could understand and, and, and grasp the fact that uh, it's not as we have believed it to be all our lives? I think a lot of people could. I think I think people need to see evidence, and I think as and, and getting, some couldn't. And some couldn't, absolutely couldn't. But you know, now we we found evidence of the Great Flood of the time of Noah, and and we're we're now finding evidence of Atlantis. So the story is starting to unfold as as we get closer to yet that same turning point that the Hopi elders spoke of, and I think that is why at this time in history there are so many uh, sightings of UFOs and. And, and what may possibly be actually our ancient gods and goddesses from other stars. Oh, there, there's an interesting thought. Hold it right there. We'll be right back. It's the bottom of the hour. David Sarita and Dan Aykroyd are here. I'm Art Bell. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from December 5th, 2001. Like You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from December 5th, 2001. Dan Aykroyd, David Sarita are here. We're going to talk of all sorts of things. Yes, if you never heard that show with the Hobie Indians, uh, we'll try and get it repeated one of these days. It was absolutely awesome. Only word I could use. Awesome. Really was that. And if you heard it, you will never, ever forget it. Till your last day, and maybe not even then. Stay right where you are. Dan Aykroyd, David Sarita, both back. Uh, Dan, let me ask you a question. Uh, you are going to do a new show called Out There, but you did do one called The Sci Factor, and a lot of people, I've got a little computer next to me, and they can send me messages during the show, and a lot of people are asking about Sci Factor. They loved it. Well, uh, to address your first question about the human race being ready for revelations. Yes. Um, uh, I would say uh, that, that 50% is ready, half is ready. That's not enough. No, but the other half has to be introduced to, to such stuff, and uh, and I guess that's why uh, you're doing it. We do this, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Psy Factor was the outgrowth of uh, case files that uh, my brother and I found, um, which which were, which was the was the property which was the property of a of a technology company which was was formed to uh, specifically develop, uh, perhaps develop hardware and software out of uh, the field of supernatural exploration, and, and out of it came some incredible studies and some incredible cases that were, when I read them, they read so genuinely that I, I actually went and went to syndicated TV with them. The first year of Sci Factor, we stayed right with the cases. There was... Uh, the case of, uh, you know, this growing black void in a guy, in the corner of a guy's house, and, you know, it just kept eating, it was in Argentina, it kept eating and eating and eating everything in, in sight, and, uh, 
finally they found a connection between that and a black void in a container ship in China. Really? Uh, you know, they sent a paper clip through. Uh, so here we had a, an Einstein-Rosen bridge or a wormhole or something, and it was... You're, you're telling me they sent a paper clip from China? From from this place in Argentina, yes, through into this container. That's the way the original case read. Now, we had wow. to change it in our, in, our, in our story, you know, dramatization and all that. The first year of Sci-Factor was really, really great. The second year, we had to develop the characters. The third year, people were falling in love with the characters. Therefore, we had to make some of the cases more uh, revolve around the characters at the risk and uh, the peril of... Uh, not being uh, as accurate uh, as we were in the first year. And, you, uh, be did you begin to grieve at that? I did. I was I was disappointed, but I understood that to have a success in television, you've got to follow what the audience wants. That's right. And still, we, we did get into some interesting topics, and at least we were there trying to address some of these things. I'd love to take those case files and, and maybe, you know, do a couple of feature films. There's uh, There were some incredible stories uh, uh, that... Uh, they were broken down along the criteria of, you know, is it a hoax? Is it a climatological event? Is there something real going on here that's an anomaly, a mystery, or can it be explained through real physical empirical terms? And and that's why I went into it. Now, subsequently, I am the recipient of the Stuffed Candle Award. You've heard of that. I have it, too. <laughs> I know. Signed by Steve Allen. Um, and, you know, that's good, because when people ask me about the paranormal and supernatural, I say, well, it's really wonderful, and it's entertaining, and it's great, and it's where inquiry ought to be going, but look at all the things that are happening in legitimate science in terms of genetics and electronics and healing and medicine and astrophysics, quantum physics, uh, you know, particle physics, uh, all of these are where the keys to the supernatural and paranormal are, so if you want to be in that for life, you know, go and be a, you know, go and study quantum foam, and that'll that'll give you start start to give. There you are. I, my my snuff candle award is up next to my FCC licenses, my yeah. uh, Marconi uh, award nominations, all the important stuff. It's really important to me. I'm proud of it. Well, it's it's just maybe there's a threat there in terms of you know some con some of the conventional uh, you know views and uh, you know the, and it makes us recognize that there's that. that some, some of what we talk about is, is threatening, but really uh, it, it keeps us in check a little bit because, you know, we can get out there when we start to talk, you know, about Jersey Devil and uh, sure. uh, some spontaneous combustion, which I, I'm, I'm still sitting on the fence over. I'm not quite sure. Have you seen the photos of the doctor? Of uh, the doctor. Yeah, there, there was a doctor who spontaneously combusted. Uh, it, it, probably the most famous case. I, I've had them on the website, and uh, he completely was consumed. Uh, his chair was consumed, and only a tiny spot on the floor, not another lick of flame or fire anywhere. Yeah. Not a, not, totally inexplicable. I have this, the, 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 the FBI sort of says that the fat burns so, so hot that it, it consumes itself, and there's nothing else to consume, and, and, and then the fire's out. But, again, this needs real physical, this reads really, you know, scientific inquiry. Someone has to get interested. We have to get uh, someone who's uh, an expert in um, adipose uh, <laughs> combustion, and uh, and I guess, uh, you know, there's 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 more to be studied there. But but Sci Factor was, was fun, and we had four years in syndicated TV. That was great. And then the market completely dried up, and all of a sudden all these syndicators were producing Saturday morning programming for kids. And our dollars dried up, and uh, but we still run on uh, I think one of the Turner networks, TBN, I think or TBS, and so uh, it, it all it all has a life. And uh, by the way, are you familiar with Philip Corso, Colonel Philip Corso? 
I am. Is he still alive? Uh, he is not. Uh, I had the uh, honor of interviewing him three times, and uh, his story was absolutely spectacular. He did what you were talking about. He had documents, and he had actual artifacts from Roswell, which he parceled out, apparently, he said, uh, on direction to private industry to uh, to engineer some of this stuff, you know, like uh, some of the major inventions we've got now, he claims, came from what he parceled out to private industry. So you, you, you believe that has gone on? Um, you know, I, I, I read Corso, and it's... Uh... I, I just don't know what how we're benefiting from from it today. Certainly, there's no propulsion system evident in conventional no. aircraft that even mimics some of these interdimensional machines that wink in and out of our um, our, our world, uh, just like they're they're you know at, at the corner of Seventh uh, and Forty Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, there's no propulsion. Um, he claims fiber optics. Fiber optics, for fiber example. Fiber optics, yeah. perhaps, perhaps. But uh, you know, the conventional science and and you know, the scientific community was thinking along the, these these terms. You know, the, the, the studies and research into photonics has been going on for for a long time. Oh yes. Um, certainly, you know, he's got the credentials, military man, and uh, and all that. Again, it, it, it bears inquiry and investigation. Um, I guess some of the cloaking, uh, the stealth materials, maybe alloys, maybe uh, you know, graphite bonds, that that type of thing. Maybe there maybe there was some insight. Look, hey. You know, there's a theory that, uh, as, as we all know, in the, in the abduction world, about uh, a hybrid program and about eggs and sperm being taken and about, uh, you know, an intervention uh, on a genetic level from afar that, uh, that had happened in history many times, many, many years ago, uh, centuries ago, eons ago. And so why not technology, too? If the... How do you feel about... Our doing that, we're taking uh, cells from eggs and then a little hank of hair or a little scrape of skin and on the verge of creating a human being or a clone. Well, uh, you know, they're finding out that a lot of these cloned animals uh, have strange growths. The, the lifespan is shorter. That's right. I don't think we're creating perfect replicas. Uh, to me, uh, uh, well, human life is sacred. I, I you know... I, I can't say that I'm a fan of abortion, but I, 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 I do believe women have the, the right to choose. I, I, I think that if you're harvesting, uh, you know, if you create a full being for the purpose of harvesting, well, and obviously we're into a, a you know, a legal area here and, and, and a moral area that is, uh, that, that, that gets us into some reprehensibility. It's not, not right to do that. But, uh, but I think where you, you can maybe grow a liver, grow a heart, grow skin. That sounds good. I think that's good. Okay. I really do. I, I I think that's that that's part of what medicine should be should be about. What do you think, David? Well, I mean, as as far as the issue of abortion goes, I mean, that's there's it's so there's so many views about when the soul actually comes into the body. Right. And, and when again, when you I, I've cross section religious studies. Um, uh, many Hindu masters believe it comes in somewhere around 31 days after conception. So prior to that, technically, to a Hindu. There is no suffering. There's no death upon terminating a life. Um, the idea in Catholicism is that is that it's it's, it's murder. That basically to kill uh, an unborn infant is murder. But in Catholicism, they don't really have any philosophy or in Christianity of when the soul actually is conceived in the body. Most fundamentalist Christians believe the soul and the body are not separate, and nor can they separate. What do you believe, David? Well. I 
think I think Catholics, you know, believe that the conce- at conception is when the uh, you know when the being comes into. Uh, and, and, yeah, at the moment of, of. Oh, you mean at the moment? Sorry, at the, the moment, moment of, of birth, conception. The, I think is mostly. I mean, that's that seems to be the Catholic and good Christian. Yeah, that, and that and that would mean that you cannot abort. So really, the issue is whether there's suffering and whether whether there's murder. And, and, and again, when you cross-section religion, if you go to Buddhism and you go to Hinduism, you get different views. Certainly, um, it's a very sensitive subject, and I do believe uh, from, from, from profound evidence from researchers like Zechariah Sitchin and other ancient uh, gospels such as the Nag Hammadi Library, that the newfound gospels of Christ that were found in Egypt in 1945 reveal a much different story of the creation of the, of the human species and it is possible, just as we are now embarking on uh, modifying DNA and improving DNA, in fact, there are scientists now who can actually stop aging in single-cell tissues. I believe a, a scientist named uh, Dr. Michael West at the University of Dallas Southwest Medical Center years ago had, had discovered how to stop aging in single-cell tissues. Well, that's his company. In yeah, and all, and all of this means that in the future we, we may, if we can reach the stars, if we can uh, break the speed of light and, and start uh, branching out into our universe, we become demigods. We become co-creators in our universe, and that has some very powerful implications. And I believe also, um, if you consider the size of the universe, that w- life may have actually originally seeded on Earth from other star systems, and that means we have grandfathers and grandmothers out there um, from other star systems that originally seeded life on this planet. Well, if we can live forever, virtually, then we will get to the stars. We will get to the stars, and, and, it's, and I think our, uh, one of the things that's happened in this NASA UFO investigation is we, we are seeing a clear link from what appears to be a powerful case. And you can never be 100% certain, but what looks like a powerful case and a connection to a particular star system that, uh, that represents... The, the, the foundations and the founding of the early civilizations on our planet. And that's what we're about to get into, NASA. Dan, uh, did you see, have you seen a UFO? Have you seen something that you absolutely, simply cannot explain? Uh, absolutely, yes. Uh, yes, I have. I've, uh, heard, I've heard that rumor. What, what have you seen? Well, I'd like to preface all of this by saying there's something very comforting in all of this to me, and that is that all of it, the multiverse, everything, these creatures, uh, whether uh, we are linked uh, beyond to some uh, interdimensional species or uh, extraterrestrial species, all of it comes and was created by a god or a godhead or the cosmic engineer, a great divine being. I believe that. I'm not a fundamentalist. I'm a lapsed Catholic, ex-altar boy, ex-seminarian, but I do believe that there is a divine presence behind all of it. David, what do you think? Oh, I... I... I mean, as part of my my life's work, I've worked on the environment, I've worked in high technology, I've planted trees, but I've also, as artists mentioned, I'd spent 20 years under the influence of my father, who is a Ph.D. in psychology from Berkeley, teaching me how to meditate since I was 13 years old. And in meditation, you don't just look for um, a belief in God, you actually look for the direct experience. And, and without going into massive detail, I've had experiences that have verified that for me that there is absolutely a supreme creator behind all of this. You're very, you're very lucky. Um, and um, and and whatever and whatever that creator might be, he certainly facilitated uh, the technological advance uh, that I was witness to. And that is that I was in Martha's Vineyard. I was asleep, and I woke up to go outside and basically take a leak off my stone 
terrace there, uh, uh, the house I have in one of the, the, the hills on the island, and I, uh, I stood up on the terrace, and, you know, I was about 3 in the morning, and I looked up, and at about 100,000 feet, uh, uh, or, I'm sorry, about, uh, I was about 50,000 feet up, because I, I, I know it's 50,000 feet up, because it's exactly the height that the Concorde makes that right turn to go to Europe, and I've seen the Concorde do that at 50,000 feet from that very stone terrace. So right. I have an aeronautical... Uh, reference there, uh, and I saw two glowing white discs side by side flying tandem or edge to edge or wing to wing or what have you, completely round, completely white and glowing, very luminous. And, uh, they crossed from the, uh, south east horizon right across the sky, uh, to the northwest in uh, about 20 seconds. <laughs> and, you know, they were really, really moving. And uh, this was not a helicopter, not Venus, not the North Star, not the kite formation. Sure. This, this you know. And I called uh, my wife out, and I called my friend Larry out, and I called his girlfriend out, and the four of us saw oh. these uh, these discs go across. Now, this is way high up, and they were little dots, you know, but they weren't a satellite. It wasn't, uh, you know, the Nortel satellite or whatever. Uh, you know, the telephone satellite going, right. going across. It wasn't the space shuttle. It was something that was going really fast, probably 15,000 miles an hour. Uh, once you've seen something like that, you've actually seen it with your own eyes, and I have too, it, in two separate instances, um, life is never going to be quite the same, is it? Well, it uh, it makes for, you know, exciting conversation and exciting sort of uh, uh reaffirmation of, uh, of, 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 you know, uh, why we should go out at night and, and watch the skies and and uh, witness uh, things in the heavens that uh, that are there naturally and perhaps uh, unnaturally. Uh, it, it was it was very exciting, and of course, to this day, I, I relate that experience and still get a tingle thinking about about uh, the moment that I, that I saw that. And, uh, and and now I can turn to my wife, and she can turn to me. And when someone brings up this conversation. Uh, you know, uh, or this subject, we can say, well, you know, we've had an experience, so we 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 believe that there's something um, there that uh, some species that has this technological ability. After you saw this, did you debate with yourself and the others who saw it about public disclosure? Um, whether we should publicly disclose? That's right. Um, well, at that point, you know, they were so high up, it wasn't as if they were disturbing. Uh, Air traffic, uh, and, and they weren't a threat, they weren't a harm, also. Oh, no, I just meant go, going to the public in whatever venue and admitting oh, yeah. that you have seen something that is. You well, know. probably at that time I didn't really have an arena to do it. I didn't really have a, a voice. I should have called, called, uh, called your show and gone on, I guess. <laughs> uh, I just didn't have an outlet to, to really discuss it, but of course, I've talked about it with, with many people. Um, I have a, a friend uh, who I, we should have on. Uh, you should have on your show, and I shouldn't mention his name on the air. But afterwards, I'll give it to you, and you All can right. contact him. All right. He's a very famous director and writer, and he had a vivid UFO experience in the '70s. So, seeing him, he's we, you know we swapped swapped our, our stories, and uh, that was recently within the last couple of years. So it's just great to have a real point of reference and say, hey, I've I've shared something like this, you know. Well. There is a certain danger, of course, in in, uh, in in going public and saying this sort of thing. And I thought pretty hard about it, even though I do this kind of program. When I when I saw it, and I had a close-in experience, 150 feet above my head, a triangle 
soundlessly passing over myself and my wife. Yeah. Gigantic things. Stars went away, moon went away, almost close encounters, you know. Right. Uh, and I thought really hard before I went on the air, and I dragged my poor wife on to be my witness. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought kind of hard about it because people have sort of an attitude, although that is now changing. It, it is changing, and, and you you know, there's a tremendous uh, document, the Rockefeller Report. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, and, you know, of all the anecdotes, and, and I mean, that's a first-hand reference right right there. And, uh, you know, Stephen Greer's work and uh, and all of that, I think, is going to, to, to open things up. There's so many people in... in Have like, you met Stephen Greer? I, I haven't. I, I hope to get him on my show. He's an amazing man. Yeah. yeah. Just amazing and absolutely driven. Driven is the only word you can use to describe Stephen Greer. You know, Ronald Reagan said he saw one in his Beechcraft aircraft uh, plane coming from Sacramento to L.A. Or, That's right. And also uh, Jimmy Carter spoke of it uh, and reported it to NICAP. Um, uh, you know, you have many, many people, uh, many, many people claiming that, uh, that, uh, that this is part, part well, of Well, if they're really there, NASA would certainly have plenty of experience with them. And when we come back, I want to talk to you, too, about things that I know you've seen, NASA footage you've seen, and NASA footage I've seen, for which there is no logical explanation. Both, right. of, you, both of you hold on. We'll be right back. Dan Aykroyd, David Sarita are here, and we're talking about the stuff we usually talk about here because of its real, and I tell you it is because I've seen it with my eyes, as has Dan Aykroyd and David it's important. We'll be right back. You're listening to Art Bell Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from December 5th, 2001. You're listening to Art Bell Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from December 5th. 2001. Well, I'll tell you, this song describes Osama Bin Laden right down the line. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd and David Sarita are here, and they'll be right back. Once again, Dan Aykroyd and David Sarita, and just one last question, uh, Dan, before we blast into NASA for a second. Uh, do you believe, flat-out question, blunt question, do you believe we're being visited by extraterrestrials? I do. I believe that uh, extra-dimensionals, extraterrestrials, uh, I believe that we're being visited by beings uh, in possession of a superior, advanced, futuristic technology that enables them to wink in and out of uh, beyond the fourth dimension that we uh, we perceive every day and uh, possibly bend gravity uh, to um, to skip through time and uh, David's book has an extraordinary theory about how this would be technically and scientifically possible there was a British defense ministry spokesman I forget his name um, I, I know Nick Pope would know about him but he was a guy in the in the fifty Lord something uh, from the you know from the Ministry of Defense. He said, postulated that we are being visited by as many as twenty three different 
species, and that it's been going on since the beginning of, of recorded time. And certainly, people say, where's the proof, Dan? Where's the evidence? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's, there's paintings, there's now photos, there's extraordinary amount of videotape now uh, that you can get. And, um, you know, those things on videotape, that's not helicopters, it's not Venus, no. it's not the moon, it's... No. It's these machines. Now, is it us in the future coming back to re-engineer our DNA to make us in the future stronger? Uh, Possible. Or is it uh, a a, a foreign species in a foreign star system? And I think that uh, that, that David's book presents uh, a very very plausible uh, and believable and compelling evidence that we are being uh, visited by a benevolent and beneficent species that really cares about us and our environment. Well, they must, or we'd already be gone. Uh, they certainly would have the power if they can do what they're doing, uh, whether it's traverse uh, you know, uh, dimensions or traverse the amount of space required to get here. They could instantly get rid of us if they really wanted to. Uh, so the question is, what are they doing? Observing? This is for either one of you. Do you think they're observing? Do you think they will step in at some point if uh, if we're about to wink ourselves out? Or w- why have they not contacted us after all? Well, they, you know, they're abducting. Some species are abducting people all, all the time. Yeah, you, I know. If you, uh, and so that's a contact. It's not a. It is it is kind of a positive contact. Many of these abductees, and I've been in a room with them, you, you, you say, would you want to be visited again and taken again? And, you know, three-quarters of the hands go up, yes. I know. They don't feel it's invasive. They've been, giving, they've been given knowledge. They've been given information. Uh, they've been given an insight into, uh, into why the particular species of being that abducted them came to do so. Um, but uh, the, the species written about in David's book, for, first of all, let, let me... David, mm-hmm. let's just put an image in the, in the listeners out there. Of, okay. of, of, to tell us, describe to me and tell it and tell Arden and I. Well, what, what is a dropa stone? What does it look like? And okay, what first is of all, in world culture, uh, a Chinese professor named Chai Putei in 1938 led an archaeology team of Tibetan and Chinese archaeologists into the high mountains of Bayan Karaula on the Tibetan-Chinese border, and that's 1938. They found the skeletal remains of what appeared to be tiny people with large bulbous heads in a, in a grave site uh, with interlocking caves, um, and that's and that's an image I think that stands out in everybody's and mind. Where was that again? That's in the mountain. It's on the border of Tibet and China in the mountains of Bayankara Ula. Professor Chai Pu Te in 1938. Now then, when they go through the grave site, they find these round stones. Round discs, they're, 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 they're quite large, not maybe two feet in diameter, roughly. Um, they find 716 of them. They're round, they have a, a hole in the center, a notch. Many of them have a notch cut out of the side, and they have a spiraling groove of, uh, of closely written characters, not unlike hieroglyphics, that actually uh, were later translated. So, like a lifesaver with a notch out of it. Exactly. And, and so what does this mean? Uh, we know that ancient civilizations and ancient peoples recorded history in stone. That's how, how a lot of the ancient peoples recorded their history, the same way we record things in, in paper and, and in computers today. So what did it mean? And basically what happened is that uh, there, were two, there were two answers that came. Uh, one, 
Another Chinese professor in 1962, Dr. Sum Um Nui, actually translated the characters in the Dropa Stone, and when he was about to publish his findings at the university, he was banished uh, from the university for what he was about to state publicly. And, and what was that? What was he going to say? He was going to say that it, the translation revealed that these round disks were emulations of giant spacecraft that crash-landed in these mountains 12,000 years ago and actually described this, this burning disk. These were coming, replicas, like miniature replicas of. Right. They are miniature replicas of the craft that came crash-landing into the mountains, and then they found these, these small people from another star system. And then the answer was, okay, where, where were the people from? I mean... There's not a lot written of them other than the fact that, that they crash-landed from another star system. Inside of the caves, they had little pea-sized dots connecting between stars and the Earth. So these pea-sized dots were theoretically telling us where the origin of these, of these ancient peoples were from. In 1947, an English scientist named Dr. Carl Robin Evans went in under an audience from the, the 14th Dalai Lama, our current Dalai Lama. He got an audience with him, and then he went to study with the local tribespeople in the area, learned the language, and then he learns from a local tribesman named Lurgon Law that this crash saucer and these ancient peoples uh, came from the star system of Sirius 12,000 years ago. So then we got an answer to, to you know, what a drop of stone was, what it emulated, and, and where this ancient civilization was from. So, so we get a connection to a star system. And, and so I... I... I bring that up just first to put that image out there of this, this stone with the significance. And then cut to modern technology today, the space shuttle, space shuttle number 79, mission 79, was it not? Yes. STS-75, uh, uh, February 1996. Okay, which, which on board there are numerous recording devices, audio and video, for the work of the astronauts and for ground control and, and monitoring. Uh, there are also cameras uh, outside uh, in the shuttle bay when it's open, and uh, they, right. and they look at the Earth's horizon and the Earth, and they get all kinds of views. And after all, folks, if these things are really going on, these things we see, they would have to see them, wouldn't they? And and I I believe the evidence is that that they have. And all of these all of these images, if, if if a picture is taken and it's transmitted back to ground control, well, that comes down through the ether and can be received by satellite uh, by receiving dishes on Earth. That's right. Uh, let's go to Vancouver, David, and talk about your friend uh, at the cable station there and the, yeah, the, well, the massive material he gathered over the years. Uh, and uh, explain the, the body of, of the material that he, he gathered and, uh, and his process yeah, the audience and, and then how it was interrupted. audience should understand. There's something called NASA Select. I can receive it here on C-Band. And you receive, uh, at least certainly in those days, it was not uh, tape delayed. You received live transmissions from the shuttle. And this man apparently uh, was dedicated to recording them. Is that correct, David? That's correct. Uh, we no longer have that availability today because NASA has encrypted their broadcast. But back then, um, in about 1994, when I, I had been working with many of the top physicists from the United States and Russia in the field of nuclear fusion and uh, had access to some of the, literally, the, the top physicists in the world. And Martin Stubbs, the program manager of a cable TV station, through a photographer friend of mine named Michael Boyle, had approached me and said, uh, would you do an investigation 
uh, into this space shuttle phenomena, into what, what may be UFOs. And I said, yeah. I mean, I myself in, in 1968 in Berkeley, California, was one of hundreds of witnesses to a daylight UFO sighting. So for me, I knew they, they existed. So it wasn't an absurd question to me. And uh, I took take a look at the footage, and I looked at it, and originally I thought this would be a very quick investigation that would have some sort of a plausible answer. <laughs> and what I started to do was uh, um, Martin Stubbs, the program manager of the cable TV station, started giving more and more of this footage. He had spent around six or seven years of his life um, uh, recording live NASA broadcasts and, and, and cataloging what appeared to be UFOs, or at least in the true sense of the word, unidentified flying objects. So I started studying them, and I started writing scientists at NASA and talking to other physicists about them. I had a lot of uh, knowledge in science and physics myself from being a fly in the wall to many Nobel Prize winning physicists and, and, and having them at my disposal. So I knew how to do a lot of thinking myself. And I started dialogue at, uh, at NASA at the highest level. I had been talking to scientists like uh, Dr. Earl Van Landingham, who back in 1989 was the head of propulsion, power, and energy at NASA. I had talked to uh, um, Dr. Joseph Newth III, who was NASA's head of astrochemistry. I had talked to National Space Act award-winning astrophysicist Lou Frank and, and Edgar uh, Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell. And, and there were quite a number of other physicists that, that over the course of the six years I was sharing the footage with and, and looking for answers. And on the footage, and the reason that David made this inquiry is because it is very, very compelling. You see the NASA, and, and Dave, you'll correct me as I go along here, mm -hmm. but you see you, in this particular piece from STS-79, you see, and, and you can you can get it, uh, it's, it's available. Okay, yeah, he uh, says 75, and then there's 80, and there, there's quite a number of missions that have it. The one, really. the one that's, that's really compelling is the one with the, the tether of the satellite that breaks off. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, that's you have the shuttle. It releases the satellite, a tethered satellite, hopefully to go up and uh, and, and and get into the trajectory that they wanted to achieve. But there was a, a mistake, and the, and uh, the, the tether broke. Correct, David? That's correct. So you see the satellite come out. You see the tether, which is long, a mile long. Twelve miles long. Twelve miles long. The tether, and it breaks away, and floats away from the uh, space shuttle to a distance of about what? Uh, starting starting camera is about 77 miles away, drifting to 100. Right. So you see this long, long, glowing straight cord, which is the tether, and Gl that's the phenomenon you see. Glowing, then, glowing is right. And then in the background, uh, slowly these objects begin to float in behind this 12-mile-long tether, which is 100 miles away. And these objects are round with a hole in the middle and a notch in the side. That's right. Like the uh, the same symmetry as the Dropa stone. And they also, uh, when I freeze-frame these, these pulsing uh, phenomenal discs, I, I got a spiraling wave exactly. With, so showing all three phenomena matching the Dropa stone, the notch, the hole in the middle, the round shape, and the spiraling wave. And I suppose both of you are aware of some of the astounding UFO sightings in Europe 
that show exactly what you're talking about yeah. with, with a notch and all. No exactly. The woman, uh, there's a woman in England who has seen That's it a right. couple of times. That's right. And she caught a hell of a photo, and I, yeah. I, and some, I think she sold it to somebody for uh, television. But yeah, that was Robert Kiviot. There, there, Kiviot. Yeah, that's and, right. And it's round. It's got the notch. It's got the spirals. Now, David, the dimensions of these craft. If, if in fact you've got the shuttle, you've got the 12 miles away is the tether. I mean, 100 miles away is the tether. 12 miles long. What 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 are the dimensions in scale? As you look at this footage, what what does it seem the dimensions of these? Uh, well, now are? there's there's a couple of ways that I, I take the measurements. Firstly, we have a 12 mile long tether, um, and again I've done very deep research at NASA into this. Um, we have it's all on tape, folks. All, all on, on tape. tape. I mean, right now we we finished a, a three part a three hour documentary, so people can order it. People have been going to through Art Bell's uh, Art Bell your site all day today. Um, so everything we're talking about, um, uh, can you can now actually see in the documentary and also read about in the book. Um, so your measurements are taken how? The measurements are taken. Okay, first of all, the tether is 12 miles long. So you've got a reference. You've got you've got relativity. Sure. You can clearly see the objects are going behind the tether. So that and actually I mean confirms that you're not looking at an optical illusion. If, if I put a piece of, of fluff near the camera lens and and I measured it against something 100 miles away, I couldn't get a true relativity measurement. But we can clearly see they're going behind. And, and so many, can, many of them, David. There's many of them. Um, and the largest, use, measuring the diameters of the UFOs against the 12-mile length of the tether, I estimate two to three miles in diameter minimum sizes. And if they're farther behind the tether than I think, they could be much larger than that even. These are... But at minimum, two to three miles wide. Those are big, big objects. Now, let's backtrack just a little bit. The tether broke. Now, it was a fascinating experiment that, as far as I know, they have not yet repeated. Who knows why? Uh, it was an that, energy gathering thing, right? It exactly. sure was. And uh, as a matter of fact, they gathered so much energy. When we say the tether broke, that's not exactly what occurred. No, that's not exactly what occurred. What occurred was... The 12-mile the, the length of the tether, first of all, they ran a charge of electricity through it, just like you would charge any antenna, and they were trying to produce energy as the tether dragged through the Earth's ionosphere, the char magnetically charged part of our atmosphere, and also collecting highly charged particles that are basically permeating space in the zero, the zero plane of space all day long. And what they got was so much more than they expected that it just literally melted Exactly. It melted. So, you know, you might speculate, at least I might, I can do that, that um, that these beings were, uh, they were aware that we were on the, uh, uh, the, the, the precipice of discovering a new energy source that might change this planet forever. That's what I think, personally. Well, that's what NASA discovered, and it really gets quite advanced, the tether, is that space, has a lot more energy. In fact, in the tether, the measurements were ten times more than physicists had predicted. Thank you. So there's a lot more energy in the zero of space in what's now called the quantum void than scientists had ever previously thought. And that energy field in space may be what some of these, uh, these, uh, ain't, uh, these, these great civilizations from other star systems are tapping into to, to traverse the great distances of our universe. Well, maybe they're not ready for us to tap into it just yet. Um, maybe not. Maybe maybe that's 
could be part of it, but also there seems to be a benevolent intervention here, David. And mm-hmm. in your book, you go on to, uh, to to postulate a theory as to why these crafts are visiting our outer atmospheres, our ionosphere, mm-hmm. stratosphere, and 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 that would be why. Why why are why is this particular species with this particular crowd? What are they doing with these huge? Are they just observing, or are they acting on uh, a benevolent impulse here? Well, well, the first thing I'd have to backtrack a bit to, to answer the question. My original investigation at NASA started with Dr. Newth, the, the head of astrochemistry at NASA, talking about. Um, a discovery NASA had made in space um, of something they couldn't explain. Giant 40-ton balls of water doing 35,000 miles an hour were entering our atmosphere at a rate of 10 to 20 million impacts a year. And David, were... David, uh, you're going to have to hold it right okay. there. That really is an interesting point to hold it to. Dan Aykroyd, David Sarita are my guests. And this footage exists. As a matter of fact, he's got uh, tapes that you can get your hands on through my website. And when we come back, uh, we'll try and explain to you how you can do that. You really should see it for yourself. Seeing is believing. I'm Art Bell from the high desert. This, this is Coast to Coast AM. has to be that NASA knows these things are there, right? So that means they're lying to us, not telling us the truth. And the question would be why? Why would they lie to us? And I'm sure we'll cover that shortly with these two gentlemen. Dan Aykroyd, the Dan Aykroyd, and David Cerrito are my guests, and they'll be right back. Once again, uh, Dan Aykroyd and David Sarita. Gentlemen, welcome back. We were talking about these balls of water, or I suppose if they were in space, uh, ice, uh, water when they get here, uh, crashing into Earth. David? Yes, okay, that's where we left off. Um, D- David, you, um, you, were, you were in correspondence with this Dr. Newth. Now, how did you find out about the NASA research, which, which was revealing knowledge of these huge balls of water coming into the into, into the atmosphere uh, and and avoiding satellites and avoiding shuttles and mm-hmm. and somehow seemingly uh, being uh, directed uh, what 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 was the origin of the NASA study maybe we well basically in about 1985 a scientist named Dr. Louis A Frank who was operating um, satellites that could see into the ultraviolet light spectrum um, incidentally, the ultraviolet light spectrum is the spectrum of light that we can't see as humans, but because it's too high in energy uh, for us to see. Um, they had developed uh, cameras that were looking into these upper spectra of light, and uh, Frank started to detect these moving objects that were quite large and, and moving and entering our atmosphere, and they were only showing up in these ultraviolet light spectrum something that no one in the history of space science had ever as ever observed before. Normally, when you take a, a, a picture of an object, um, 
if I have any gas, liquid, or solid object in space, I can take a picture of it in infrared, which is heat, a spectrum of light that's lower than the human eye can see, and then you could also take a picture of it in the visible spectrum, which we can see with our eyes. Mm -hmm. But this was something completely different. NASA was looking at something that was only showing up into the, into the near and far ultraviolet. That immediately cued my attention for a particular reason. I'll have to backtrack a little bit. In 1989, I was speaking with Dr. Earl Van Landingham, who was then NASA head of propulsion, power, and energy. We had had a long talk about nuclear fusion. And I decided to candidly ask him, had NASA ever made contact with an extraterrestrial civilization? And Dr. Van Landingham didn't laugh. He, he, didn't, he took the question very seriously. And he said, no, we haven't. And he said, when you consider the amount of energy it takes for a spacecraft to do the speed of light, to arrive at Earth from another star system, Alpha Centauri A and B are like 4.3 light years from Earth and Sirius is 8.7, it takes a tremendous amount of energy to get velocity in a spacecraft. And then, of course, you have other problems. Um, you, another problem you have with a spacecraft attaining the speed of light is Einstein's law. Uh, this, I'll make this very simple for people. Basically, e equals mc squared tells us that solid mass, a spacecraft like the shuttle, can't go too fast. It can't accelerate too fast because the faster it travels, the more the impeding force of inertia. If, I, if you use the example of wind, if you stick your head out of the car doing 70 miles an hour, the wind impedes upon your face and pushes you back. The faster you want to go, the stronger the wind gets. When you go through space, there's not as much inertia, but as you start to get into incredible speeds, it starts to impede upon you. And Einstein says the physical mass cannot attain light speed because the faster you go, the greater the inertia, and then you've got to increase your energy to the point that you can never actually attain light speed. So, so where am I going with this? Basically, what eventually physicists discover is that the only way you can go light speed is if you could, theoretically, if you could change the solid structure of a spacecraft and turn it into light, turn it into actual energy so that it no longer has solid mass. It's actually waveform or pure energy. Make it vibrate at a higher light. At a higher level. Actually, I thought Einstein suggested that if you did achieve the speed of light, that is exactly what would happen. That's exactly, and you're right, that's the next evolution of it. If you, would, if you did achieve the speed of light, you would literally have to transform into light. So if you look at why a photon can do the speed of light, it's because it has no mass. It basically is called a massless particle. Um, so, again, where is this going? Dr. Earl Van Landingham, Director of Propulsion, Power, and Energy at NASA, told me, again, the energy part of the equation, and that when you consider that, that the great amounts of energy that it takes for a spacecraft to do the speed of light, he said we would detect a signal well advanced in the arrival of the spacecraft. Well, where do we detect high-energy signals? When we look at how we actually observe phenomena, as humans we observe things in light-speed time, uh, and we actually look at things in regards to light. How do we actually make high-energy observations? Well, in the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, at the bottom of the spectrum, you have radio and TV waves. Higher in frequency than that, you have microwaves. Then you have infrared all of these spectrum are invisible but detectable to humans at this point with our current technology. Right. And as you go higher into the spectrum, you're, what you're actually observing is higher and higher levels of energy. Mm -hmm. So in regards to Van Lanningham's uh, statement, where we should be looking to see 
greater energy signal is not down in radio where SETI is looking, but rather up into the visible and the, the near ultraviolet, the far ultraviolet, the extreme ultraviolet, and even higher into X-ray and gamma, way, uh, gamma ray waves, and that's exactly where NASA is looking. And, the, and by the way, where Frank was looking. Yes, yeah, and, and that's exactly SETI, where Frank was looking. SETI is also moving in that direction. And, and SETI is, is everyone's starting to figure this out now because when you again when you take the energy part of the equation that both Einstein and, and uh, Earl Van Manningham are stating to us, we need to be looking at higher energy signals. And so NASA's video cameras on the space shuttle, which all of this footage of the tether was taken on, is a special camera that is kind of they basically take an off-the-shelf video camera and they soup it up kind of like you would mm -hmm. soup up a hot rod car mm -hmm. to see into the near-ultraviolet light spectrum. So when something only shows up in the ultraviolet light spectrum, it means the entirety of the object. It means every single atom is vibrating as pure waveform energy in a spectrum of energy that is, that is actually radiating with so much energy that we can't see it. That's exactly what in regards to what Van Leningham is saying, where we should be looking to detect such a signal, and that's exactly where these UFOs are showing up. So, All right, so how are they explaining this? Now, when he started to find these water balls um, only showing up in the ultraviolet spectrum... Going 35,000 miles an hour and hitting our, our upper atmosphere. Hitting, hitting our upper atmosphere, doing 35,000 miles an hour, I went, oh, my God, this, these, this meets the criteria of un unidentified flying object phenomena sure. for what we should be looking for. And then I got in the middle of this huge debate between Lou Frank, all these other scientists, and Dr. Joseph Newth III, the head of astrochemistry at NASA, trying to find out what these things were. And, and that's where it all began. What we ended up with was a war. On one hand, Frank really did appear to be seeing giant water balls entering our atmosphere. But on the other hand, there were so many of them, and they weren't showing up in infrared, which they should, which showed me they were highly quantized phenomenal objects. And then Nuth was pulling his hair out of his head because he said, with this many objects impacting our atmosphere, no satellite nor the space shuttle has a chance of surviving days, let alone years, if these were actually naturally occurring water balls or, or what are now called small comets. And, and so there's a huge disagreement. The only answer in the end that I could come up with in, in the debate was that these water balls were being intelligently directed around the satellites, and that was the only way we could describe how they, the only answer to explain why they aren't hitting the hitting, satellites. Hitting them. Well, uh, is it so hard to imagine, after all, uh, there's a very strong theory that uh, that's the way life was seeded originally on Earth. Water is the matrix of all of life. It is you the, bet. Every living thing is made of water. And then the other part of the problem was that water cannot survive deep transits in space, not small amounts of water like this, right. without burning up under the intensely hot rays of ultraviolet and gamma rays and X-rays. In fact, it, it shouldn't even be here. So then I postulated to Newt that the only possible answer is that they had a phenomenal membrane around them, kind of like a radiant barrier. Uh, let me explain to people what a radiant barrier is. In space, the temperature, uh, the temperature of space is minus 273 degrees, so it's freezing. But as soon as you have a gas, liquid, or solid exposed to space above the atmosphere, it basically gets bombarded by cosmic rays from our sun and from other stars, and you get temperature. So... Because you're getting temperature uh, on the water at such a high degree, the water should theoretically burn up. It shouldn't have arrived here. 
So the only way to protect anything in space, satellites, this, the, the space shuttle, or these alleged water balls at this point, is if they had a, a foil-like or a gold reflective uh, r- radiant barrier to bounce out those those harmful rays. Kind of like, you know, the same way down on the Earth here, we try to, we, our atmosphere actually filters out all the harmful rays, the more intense cosmic rays from entering our atmosphere. So at this point, the only way we could see these water balls surviving is if they had a barrier around them, and that would start to look like some sort of an intelligence, and that's something that NASA would, could not agree to. So the, the debate remains stagnant, has remained stagnant to this day. I filled in the blanks. The answer was clear to me. The only way they could be going, that there could be so many of them impacting our atmosphere and not hitting the satellites is, for one, they were going around them, and two, they might, must have had some sort of a thin or protective shell, and that, and that starts to lead to the idea that we're dealing with intelligence. Yes, but NASA then is well aware of this, and, and all of the other NASA footage that I'm sure Dan has seen a lot of, yeah. I've seen it too. Mm-hmm. You can't watch this footage without your mind getting blown, and, and you're, you're saying to yourself, well, then we're being lied to. Uh, I think that I think that the rank and file of NASA. I think I think that that, that there are many there who are big fans of this footage. Mm-hmm. It's known that many were big fans of the Mission to Mars movie, which which laid out and postulated uh, the seeding scenario, and that I think that your public relations uh, mechanism at NASA has is just operating under this. Is it the Space Act of 1958, David? Yeah, exactly. It was the Space Act of 1958. There's a, there's a blank, you know, uh, government employees uh, and people in aerospace and astrophysics and in the military are, are prohibited by United States code, uh, mm-hmm. by, I forget what title it is, title something, uh, subsection, paragraph, you know. Uh, you'd have to have a lawyer look, look into it, but are prohibited from talking about uh, UFOs. Well, I, I had two NASA public, public relations guys on the air with me, and it was very instructive. Their answers were very instructive in, in, in essentially denying everything. I mean, just it, it was an obvious, full-blown, we're going to deny everything, ice crystals, propulsion, any, any reason at all one can give, the reasons they do give, mm-hmm. and they just flat denied everything. And, and that's what uh, what I did for this six-year investigation. And, and again, in the middle of this conversation, I'd actually like to point out that if people can buy this video, the three-part, do- three-hour documentary. I tell you to the listeners out there, it's just fascinating and so provocative. And it is. It, it will spur debates amongst your friends, and you will. Uh, some will hew to the theory that it's ice crystals on the windshield, uh, on the windscreens, and all that. Which, of course, Newth got into with you. But David, before we talk about that. Mm-hmm. Where, what is happening after the point of impact of these water balls, and why are they being hurled at us by this intelligence? Okay, so when this gets incredibly interesting, because again, I didn't know where this investigation was going. This was day one. Basically, what happens, and what I what I started arguing with Dr. Newth about is first he agreed with me. Uh, he said one of the problems with Frank's hypothesis is that these water balls theoretically could not be coming here. They couldn't survive the intense temperatures of space. Um, I eliminated tailings from the recent passings of comets such as Hale-Bopp. He said, no, that these are definitely not uh, uh, melted tailings from the passing of a comet um, because it's, it's something that's been occurring even when no comet has been passing by. So we eliminated that. Um, we eliminated shooting stars, space debris, space junk, just about everything in, in the argument. 
And then I said to Dr. News, well, wouldn't the, the enormity of water, <clears throat> you've got 40 tons of water, um, they're evaporating as they hit the upper atmosphere. I said, wouldn't the intense radiation from the sun break the H and the O, water is hydrogen and oxygen, separate the two, um, at 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, hydrogen separates from oxygen, and the oxygen, as it got bombarded, the oxygen that was released from the water would be bombarded by solar radiation and produce ozone. So we all know our ozone layer is dying, and yet these mysterious balls of water would be producing oxygen, which would then transmutate into O3, which is ozone. So I said, oh, my God, is the actually my first question to Nuth about that is, is there a God? Is someone hearing our call? Um, are these things actually producing ozone? And he, and he agreed with me, yes, they would actually produce some ozone. He didn't know or, or understand exactly how much ozone they're producing, and, it, and it's a very difficult conversation to have with, with a scientist like Dr. Newth at NASA because, first of all, it, they, they're not able to take accurate measurements about how much ozone has been depleted and also how much these things are producing. So... If we're, we're seeing a retardation in, in the damage to the ozone layer, it could be related to these giant water balls. Now well, then, we, we do know uh, how serious the ozone depletion is becoming. I mean, 3 to 5%, I believe, over the uh, North American continent, for example, uh, zillions more cancers, all kinds of problems as a result of it. So Exactly. And I used to know the scientists at NASA... Retired now at Berkeley, Dr. Johnston, who did the original calculations on ozone depletion for NASA about 15 years ago. And his calculations showed me something so terrifying. He said within 30 years, that was about 10 or 15 years ago, um, life could end on this planet. Right. He said we don't have to lose all the ozone for life to end. We only have to lose some of it. And and, and yet that hasn't happened. So I'm I'm quite I'm quite interested. I don't know how much ozone these things are producing, but it seems to be an act of benevolence because what later happens in this investigation, uh, we were talking earlier about the Dropa stones and how they looked identical with the, the square notch cut of the side, the hole in the middle, and the spiraling wave to a Dropa stone. Now, I didn't know where this investigation was going, but many years later, basically five or six years later, when I had made... Uh, through a researcher named David Ballard, made the, the connection to the Dropa Stones, and I researched how they were connected to the star system Sirius, and then I decided to read Robert Temple's book, The Sirius Mystery, and I learned, oh, my God, here was my answer. The ancient Syrian gods were known as the masters of water. They were known as the water gods who were from watery planets in the Sirius star system, mm -hmm. and it, everything came crashing together. In Temple's book, The Serious Mystery, he talks of, of a tribe, um, an African tribe called the Dogon tribe in northwest Africa who prophesy the return of these Syrian gods. And in the day of the return would be called the Day of the Fish, uh, which is quite interesting to describe the aquatic or watery nature of these gods. And lo and behold, during the STS-75 tether incident, the tether and the satellite and the shuttle were passing directly over northwest Africa, moving on over to Egypt, the precise home and location of the Dogon tribe, who prophesied their return. So was all this a coincidence? Was the, the original uh, investigation into water and the intelligence around water and then the enormous UFOs and how 
they, they led me to the star system of Sirius, and then finding out that the Syrian gods, which again you can learn about all of this in great detail in the documentary, were the masters of water, and that they had mastery over water. And in fact, if we look back in, in biblical history, we can see uh, the God of, of Moses parting the Red Sea. We can see Jesus Christ walking on the water and commanding the sea to a calm. Right. We can see all of these great gods of Egypt um, were, who were known as masters of water. So it really looks like we're looking at something far beyond coincidence, that we could not have so many coincidences. If this you extrapolate it right out, exactly. there could be a benevolent species which is grafting the, the damaged ozone layer with a view towards healing this planet, and that gives me a lot of hope if, uh, if, if there's any, any grounds for, for, credible, uh, for, you know, for credible evidence here. And I believe David's book and the documentary uh, set it out as, as, as far as, as, as one can. He's laid it all out here. And uh, All right, we're at the top of the hour. Are you guys good to go for one more? Yeah. Yeah. All right, good. Um, all right, you two, hold on. We'll be right back. From the high desert, this is Coast to Coast AM with Dan Aykroyd, David Sarita, and, of course, moi. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from December 5th, 2001. You're listening to Art Bell Somewhere in Time on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from December 5th, 2001. Dan Aykroyd is here along with David Sarita, and we'll get immediately back to them. Once again, Dan Aykroyd and David Sarita back on the air again. Uh, gentlemen, uh, continue. Where were we? Well, we're we going... Were, we've got a drop of stone in, 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 in uh, an ancient culture that is like a lifesaver with a notch cut out of it. We have a picture that a woman took in England of such a craft in the sky. We have the NASA STS-75, their own cameras recording the tether with these Objects in the background, looks like a lifesaver, notch out of it. We have water balls hitting the planet, producing ozone to hopefully heal the atmosphere in this theory. We have the Syrian connection, and David, you spoke of the, the launch of, uh, of the shuttle at a, at a particular time, and, uh, yeah, and that I was actually... into that at the end of your book, and, his, and David's book is called, uh, the best evidence, the case for NASA UFOs. It's a must-read and uh, incredible, uh, incredible volume with a great theory about a life-affirming, benevolent presence. Hopefully, that. Well, Dan, uh, how much trouble do you think we're in environmentally? Well, when you've got frogs, uh, you know, missing limbs and growing extra limbs and 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 missing eyes and tumors. Uh, when you have species dying out around the world. Uh, in uh, in South America, in formerly pristine areas like rainforests and jungles, uh, when you have acid rain eating uh, the paint off my farmhouse, um, 
air pollution uh, at uh, such degrees now that uh, that even towns along here where we are in Lake Ontario are suffering. Uh, formerly, uh, they didn't have that kind of a problem. Uh, you know, I think we are in. Uh, we're, we're probably, as David Suzuki, the great environmentalist, says, we are a minute from midnight, and midnight be, being catastrophe. The weather would also seem to be undergoing a fairly profound change at the moment. Even the major networks are beginning to take note. Yeah, I'm, I'm up here in eastern Ontario near Ottawa, uh, the capital city of Canada, which is on the same latitude as Moscow. And, uh, you know, uh, it is, uh, it is, you know, today it was like almost uh, 65 degrees, and we're sitting at night. I got the door open here. Really? Uh, I'm, I, on the other hand, uh, Dan, I'm about 20 miles from Death Valley. Yeah. And it's presently 29.5 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that nice cool desert air. But David, tell tell us about the, the shuttle launch and and the uh, the Syrians being the, the proponents of, of 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 water, the the these these beings that, that that are the masters of these water balls. In your theory, well, basically, you know, where we left off is again we've we've made a connection here. We started an investigation uh, six years ago at NASA into water balls that defied all all logic and all physics. They they seem to be to me, to be intelligently driven, and ultimately, in, in chemistry, water breaks down into hydrogen and oxygen, and the oxygen transmutates into ozone, and that would definitely be producing a significant amount of ozone in our atmosphere, and that would obviously have some sort of a healing or benefit to our, our failing ozone layer. And then, you, of course, we, we made the connection to the Dropa Stones, and the Dropa Stones led us to Sirius, the star system of Sirius, and when I read Robert Temple's book, which is another book I really urge people to read, we, we make the connection to the Syrian gods as the masters of water. Um, and the ancient Egyptian gods and goddesses were known as, in Temple's research, the masters of water. So, again, it all came crashing together. There were so many coincidences. And, and further, that the space shuttle and, the, and during the tether incident was traveling right over northwest Africa, the home of the ancient Dogon priest and the Dogon tribe who live in Mali, northwest Africa, and prophesied the return of the Nomos, what they call the Nomos, or the, or the ancient gods from the star system of Sirius, and said it would be called the Day of the Fish and the Star of the Tenth Moon, and um, we, this, would, this would mark their return. And that uh, Temple actually wrote in his book that the Dogons described these ancient gods from Sirius traveling to Earth in watery spacecraft that would be encapsulated in a thin metal, sh metal shell. And inadvertently, uh, Temple was actually describing Dr. Frank's discovery of water balls that, that had a, <coughs> excuse me, a radiant barrier or some sort of a foil protecting barrier around them to prevent them from burning up under the intense radiation from the sun. So, it, there was just so many coincidences in this investigation that it just doesn't look like like Na many of uh, of NASA's scientists trying to slough these things off as some sort of explainable phenomena. Um, yeah, but here's here's the problem, uh, David and Dan. It's it's this, and I've talked to NASA people, and I tell them about the kind of things you're talking about right now, and they say, "My God." If NASA knew of something like this going on, some program like this going on, extraterrestrials visiting us, we would be the very first to tell you about it because we depend on a budget. 
and uh, nothing would get our budget going like, uh, you know, uh, a discovery of extraterrestrials. So there's got to be some much larger force at work that would prevent them from, uh, uh, you know, feeding their own budget. I, what about that? Well, actually, what's, what's ha actually, just before we went on the show tonight, I got off the phone with a friend of mine who was working on the space station. I can't really tell his name because he has since become a massive fan of the of the of the NASA footage. I've shared it with him and his family, mm -hmm. and he's saying NASA's falling apart under under Bush right now. Um, in fact, Dan Golden, who is actually resigning from NASA because of arguments with the president, and the president trying to cut funding, cutting back the space station, cutting back everything at NASA. And, and, I, and I think that this is a mistake. I think that we have to. Well, so do I. But again, explain. Uh, after all, they could announce this, and and the funding would go through the roof, wouldn't well, it? Well, well, here's the question. A, a lot. And again, I've worked with, <clears throat> in the association of many of the top uh, physicists in this country, including people like uh, Glenn Seberg, who chaired the Atomic Energy Commission, and invented uh, plutonium, won the Nobel Prize for it, and responsible for all the nuclear testing out in Nevada, under Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, and, and people. These these people are not really trained to understand uh, how to look for. Again, going back to Earl Van Lanningham's statement, how would you recognize a high energy signal? And I don't I don't think they really um, when they were looking through these cameras and seeing these glowing uh, giant discs. I, I don't. And then they pull their eye away from the camera and there's nothing there. I think that uh, they didn't even really understand what they were seeing. But uh, when you see, uh, it would be very difficult, I think, for the, the conventional uh, publicity mechanism of NASA to present this theory and have have it be believed. Yeah, I think uh, I think they'd have a hard time with it. Yeah, they they would. Yes, uh, I know, but, now, the, but we, we have this evidence though of these craft uh, traversing our atmosphere at you know twenty five thousand miles an hour going across the Atlantic. There's some pretty impressive. Uh, radar uh, confirmations and visual confirmations and photographs and all the rest of it. So somebody there has to know something. Well, I, I think they know. Or I, I mean, again, people I know at NASA, there's a couple of physicists that, that I mentioned in my investigation who are absolutely baffled by these videotapes. Uh, Dr. Louis A. Frank was so baffled, and his research team was so baffled, he couldn't even... He said, we've seen the tape over and over several times, and I want to speak to you about it because it's... In, Basically, he's saying he's mystified, and this is an astro, a but, National but, Space Act award-winning astrophysicist admitting to me he can't explain what these things are. I understand, but again, playing the devil's advocate, uh, this is what the NASA guys said on my program. They said we would uh, at least announce something about this to get our budget cooking. So there's got to be well, some. Well, you've got great a good point, or I think you have a great point. But I also th I think some people at NASA have figured out what I've figured out, um, and, and I'll tell you again, you've had. Uh, Richard Hoagland, a profound space research scientist, uh, on your show, and, and two incidences he reported that really got my attention. Again, I've been in the business of, of detection with physicists, and I understand how we make detections on a vast, uh, a vast level. In night, I think it was called the Pegasus incident. Remember the Pegasus incident? I remember it very. Remember clearly. the giant disc that showed up on radar but yes. didn't show up in the visible spectrum? Yes. That's exactly what I'm looking for. You're looking for a high energy signal of something that isn't appearing in lower dimensions. Well, I don't think there's a big argument. I, I, I think those, those were two to three hundred mile wide circles, and they were yeah. moving, and they showed up on radar, but we couldn't see them. That is exactly what we should be looking for in regards to. 
considering Einstein's law that a solid craft can't do the speed of light, but if you turn into pure energy, you can. That's what we should be looking for. How, how does that happen? How do we how do we take mass and turn it into light? And how is it possible that these uh, that that from eight and a half light years away, these uh, craft are able to make this journey in much less time than that? Well, that's a subject that. In, in the video, in the documentary, and also in the book, I, I treat with incredible uh, respect. Um, what I did is I, with a, a zero-point energy scientist named Steve Okerlund in Maui, mm-hmm. we got a giant TV, plugged the, the, the tether tape into an incredibly good quality VCR, and we watched the pulsing waves, the, the UFOs that are actually pulsing as they move over the top of the tether. That's right, I've seen it. Okay. I freeze-framed those pulses with an incredibly accurate VCR, and I started studying the wave patterns. And you're going to see this in the documentary, and it's really hard to explain it uh, on the air, but I'll basically tell you that the wave patterns revealed to me that the the propulsion system of these craft and the the energy generation system of these craft, and I'll explain, basically extremely high-frequency waves that are obviously stronger than, than light, are pulsating through the craft. And what happens when you pulsate mass steel with high-frequency waves of energy? A Canadian scientist named John Hutchison, who is discoverer of the Hutchison effect, is actually doing the exact same thing. He's been pulsing uh, extremely high-frequency waves from Tesla coils and Van de Graaff generators and really high-frequency radio waves at steel and, and, and solid objects. With what kind of result? He actually in, in levitated a 70-pound cannonball. The 70-pound cannonball starts to absorb the high-frequency waves, and it starts to levitate. And he's actually got it on film, and, and, and you can see it in, in the documentary. What, what is actually happening is everything, Nikola Tesla basically measured the Earth vibrating at between seven, 6 and 7 hertz. Or, or is it 7 and 8 hertz? It's a very low-frequency state. So matter, as we know it, is just energy vibrating at a very low frequency. If you can change the frequency of mass into a lighter frequency, it actually becomes, its mass is actually reducing. It's becoming less and less mass. So with reference to gravity... So it- what ends up happening is, is you're seeing, when I looked at the UFOs and I see these high-frequency waves pulsating through their mass, mm-hmm. they're telling me how they're levitating and moving their craft. Hutchison proves the point by, in his experiments, he's pulsating uh, a 70-pound cannonball with high-frequency waves. Eventually, the solid structure of the cannonball becomes so high in frequency that it, it starts to defy gravity and levitate. All right, maybe you can answer this. So many of the reports we've had, Dan mentioned it a little while ago, are of craft that uh, come into the visual spectrum mm-hmm. for a period of time and then, to, yeah. us, to us anyway, virtually wink out and then may appear later an impossible distance away. I can completely explain that with with what I'm explaining to you. Actually, in the NASA UFO documentary, we have footage from the space shuttle looking down at the Earth. You'll see a UFO materialize suddenly in front of the the, the space shuttle cameras as if from another dimension. Again, when we we consider the space shuttle cameras looking into, say, the near-ultraviolet light spectrum, a spectrum of energy that's too high in frequency for us to see, right? These craft are able to take their solid mass, like Hutchison's cannonball, transform them into a high-frequency wave state, which makes them turn into mass becomes energy. And as mass becomes energy, 
it basically is transforming into light. As it goes higher in frequency in that, in that spectrum, it eventually can go so high in energy that we can't see it anymore, so it appears to go into another dimension. If the UFO started vibrating in the near ultraviolet, for instance, suddenly it would appear to disappear in front of our eyes. Mm -hmm. The reason it's doing that is because the higher its frequency it becomes, it's becoming lighter and lighter and lighter. And once it becomes as light as a photon, it's easy for it to do the speed of light. In fact, it requires very little energy in the form of propulsion to move a solid spacecraft made of photons, made of light, because they have no mass. So, is, it, uh, is it your opinion, David uh, and or Dan, that what's going on at Area 51 and other secret areas is experimentation in exactly this technology? Probably not as advanced at this, David. Probably not as advanced, but I can, I can tell you one thing about Area 51 that, that I've done some research into, and that is that uh, a company called EG&G. Oh, I know them well. A very uh, one of the top four defense contractors in 1968 boasted that they had a successful demonstration of a nuclear propulsion system called Phobos 2A. Now, that would be a radioactive nuclear propulsion system. Um, because we know that we haven't actually developed truly non-radioactive nuclear power sources yet. We, th we think we haven't. Anyway. I, I've d I worked uh, with some of the top nuclear fusion scientists in the world. I, I spoke on in Congress in fusion in 1992, and there is definitely a retardation in our country to funding truly non-radioactive types of fusion, and we haven't gone there yet. So one of the signatures you could look for in discerning between an experimental craft such as those being developed at Area 51 that are nuclear propulsion systems is that there would be radioactivity evident and that would mean during a sighting or encounter you might receive radiation burns. We can't assume that someone coming from a star system like Sirius or Alpha Centauri is going to be exposing themselves to radiation because they would die long before they got here. So when we see radiation around spacecraft, harmful radiation I should point out, um, we might be seeing a signature that we're looking at something that was developed at Area 51 or somewhere else mm -hmm, on the Earth. Mm -hmm. It is some sort of experimental craft. But non-radioactive nuclear energies, and certainly getting into um, um, zero-point energy and gravity beyond light speed theory or, or magnetism beyond light speed theory craft, which is what I think we're looking at in the video, they're obviously far beyond nuclear fusion. I'll give you an example. In about 1989, 1990, I met uh, Dr. Glenn Seaborg, who chaired the Atomic Energy Commission under Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. And um, he was getting involved in a type of non-radioactive nuclear fusion called uh, helium-3 fusion, developed by a scientist I know very well from MIT named Dr. Bogdan Maglich. And I asked Seaborg about uh, zero-point energy and these alternative uh, energy developers, and he said, if anyone had developed a gravity generator, they would have the most advanced form of energy, so far advanced that even it would make nuclear fusion obsolete. And he said, I don't believe anyone's developing anything like that on the Earth today. Um, well, they should be because look But at they the should way. be. And I think that's what, what these UFOs, again, another benevolent signal, the pulsing waves coming off of the UFO and studying those waves and revealing how they're levitating their craft and then, and then, and then when I met Canadian scientist John Hutchison, I saw he was doing the same thing, and it was working. Well, I think we're on to this technology to some degree. I just think that it's being uh, suppressed for It is. Um, Hutchison reasons. has had McDonnell Douglas, um, 
Lockheed Martin, all of the defense contractors come up and try to study his technology and try to duplicate it. And I think they're on to him, and I, I think we're heading in the right direction, but again, um, we're very slow. We're very, very slow. All right, you two, hold on. We'll be right back. I'm Art Bell. Dan Aykroyd and David Sarita are here. You're listening to Art Bell Somewhere in Time, tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from December 5th, 2001. From space, you surely can see miles and miles and miles. And if these things that we're all seeing, or many of us, are real, then NASA has seen them. NASA, in all likelihood, has a pretty good idea what they are. And I still think it's a really good question, maybe a hard political question, but a good one. How come they're not telling us? Dan Aykroyd's new show is going to be called out there on the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, Dan, are you going to have David on and some of this footage? Oh, absolutely. David is uh, one of uh, one of our key guests. Um, very excited to have him on. Uh, show the footage. Discuss uh, the topic uh, of the the, the Syrian. Uh, the benevolent Syrians who uh, may be helping us heal our ozone and and on many other subjects, uh, hopefully in subsequent shows. I, I know that uh, we only have a half hour with each guest, but we're going to get into a full range of subjects, and I'm sure David will be a frequent guest. And, and Art, in answer to your question about why they don't reveal this, mm. why they don't, there's no open discussion here on mm. these matters. Right. Well, there was a congressional study done in the 50s about what this knowledge would do to Western society, and you know, it was concluded in that study that there'd be a general breakdown of respect for authority. Mm-hmm. And you know, oh wait a minute, that's hey, the Brookings supposed... report. You're talking about the Brookings report. Yes, of course. Yeah, what are, what are we? Oh, we're supposed to respect the teacher, the uh, the the cop on the street, the uh, the the military man, and the president when there's a higher being and a higher force out there. Wait a minute, hold on, get out of the way, get out of the way. We want to talk to him. We want to talk to that entity. <laughs> that's right. And you'd have that breakdown in society and that uh, disrespect for authority, people not going to work, people not going to church. Well, this is the theory anyway. I think humankind at this point today, in the year 2001, with all that's happening on the planet, with 50% of the people in, in, in polls taken all the time believing in paranormal and supernatural events, that there is much more beyond the four dimensions that we live in, much more than we see, I think people are ready to handle it. And I think that that Brookings uh, report was done, in, you know, a, a half a century ago, and times have changed. Technology's changed, and I think people are ready for a revelation. Well, to, to, some, to, to some degree, uh, perhaps, Dan, but I'll tell you, I talk to a number of fundamentalists on this program all the time. They're not ready. But it's all from God. It all comes from God. It all comes from the divine being. Um, it doesn't undermine God in any way. Uh, I don't. I don't see where it undermines God or anything Judeo-Christian at all. Uh, you've done your movies about ghosts, lighthearted stuff. Do you believe in them? Oh yes, absolutely. I'm, all one has to do is read the tremendous books that were out 
in the 70s and 80s about the ghost of flight uh, 401, oh, yes. Lockheed L-1011 that crashed in the swamp in Florida. You bet. That is a compelling ghost story, and that's one I frequently tell around the fire here in Canada. No, um, nice. There are uh, many, many books out. Uh, I have photos that were taken. We, we took a bike ride up through Louisiana and into Mississippi, and we went to the Myrtle's Plantation there. And uh, with our Harleys, we pulled up in our leathers. We were walking around, and I have Polaroids of things in behind my friends' heads, shapes, mm -hmm. shrouds, shrouded figures, right there on camera. Um, and people purport that the Myrtles is one of the most haunted places in America. I've spoken to United States Park Rangers who work at Mount uh, at um, Ellis Island, and they say that walking those parapets at night, they have seen uh, gray apparitions. They've they've felt cold spots. They've heard voices. You know, Hans Holzer was uh, a great researcher uh, of all of this uh, stuff, and he's got audio tapes. Uh, of otherworldly voices that, uh, that 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 just are, are again, you know, compelling compelling evidence. Well, okay, I agree with you. Uh, I too believe in ghosts. I've I've heard the stories for years and years and years. So compelling, and I've seen a lot of very compelling photographs. So I I believe. Uh, what I what I'm interested in though is the possibility that uh, these ghosts or these entities. Uh, are hard to separate from some of what we're talking about with with uh, David. We don't really know that they're from necessarily Sirius or who they are or what dimension they're from or anything else uh, about them, in quotes. And I'm not so sure that uh, all of this is not connected. Well, remember, Art, I mentioned uh, how the cameras can see into these higher spectrum of light, which yes. is essentially higher energy. Yes, well, David, David. David, uh, if you look at NIDS and people who have done work uh, in in uh, UV, for example, mm -hmm. they have seen things that would just blow your mind. Uh, they, know. They, you know, they've seen uh, openings uh, in midair with creatures crawling out in light spectrum that we can't see. All of that relates to what you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. I mean, one night I was going crazy because you had a woman on in the Los Angeles area who was taking pictures. And in the ultraviolet and seeing these UFOs show up that weren't showing up in, in regular view, and I knew the answer, that's, that's and I was, right. I, I was trying to get through on the line, <laughs> but I couldn't. But also in regards to Sirius, and when you mentioned NASA, do they know? Uh, your most profound space science researcher, Richard Hoagland, stated on your show that on May 27, 1999, NASA launched STS Mission 96 at 6.50 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time with Sirius at 33.33 degrees on the horizon. And that number, 33.33 degrees, is the highest number in symbology in Masonic uh, wisdom. That's true. And we know the founding fathers of our Constitution were all Masons. And we know that people very high up at NASA, are also very aware of Masonic symbology. So yes. why, again, was it serious? Three years later, after STS-75, uh, which was in 1996, and now we got three years later and 33.33 degrees and serious. It's serious. It's on the horizon. So I postulate that NASA may know and have figured out the same thing I have, and I'm just one step behind them. There you are. And that they know who our visitors are, and they've said it, in a very subtle way. And all yeah. we had to do was decipher it, and thanks to Richard Hogan, we have that fact. Right. 
Um, what about their quest for zero-point energy? Do you think there's any evidence that... Well, now, again, in 1996, mysterious or not, the same year as the mission of, of the STS-75 incident, NASA opens up a new division headed by a very young physicist uh, around the same age as me, uh, Dr. Mark Millis, um, into research into zero-point energy, quantum ideas, and even beyond light-speed theory um, hype, uh, technologies. So NASA suddenly became very interested in 1996 and funded this new division into zero-point energy, something that uh, previously they weren't interested in. Why was it all happening around that year? Also, an astronaut who was on board that particular mission, Dr. Franklin Chang-Diaz, who, who, who saw whatever we're seeing on the videotape live that day, mm -hmm. we saw pulsing UFOs. Dr. Franklin Chang-Diaz became the head of the, uh, the Johnson Space uh, Center's um, propulsion lab, and he developed a pulsed plasma rocket just a few years later. Was he trying in his own way to reverse engineer the kind of physics he thought he was seeing that day? There's just so many coincidences as we go through this investigation. And uh, I really think, I think people should, should look and, and take a look at this documentary and, and the video and see and read the book if they can and, and make their own decision. I, I've shown arguments on NASA's side as to why they think they're not UFOs. Some scientists at NASA that are mystified and, and, and from the viewpoint that these are, are, are unidentified flying objects, and I think I've shown all sides in this case, and people can make up their minds in the end who they want to believe. Well, uh, the people who would have seen a lot of this are the astronauts. Now, mm -hmm. the astronauts, those including those who went to the moon, um, have all had incredibly difficult lives since their missions, mm -hmm. as though they are aware of something, and they're keeping it inside. I mean, they have had uh, bouts with alcoholism uh, uh, at a, just an astounding rate, uh, loss of, uh, of families, divorces, um, all kinds of very difficult things have happened to these guys who had the right stuff. But yeah. a few have come out and, and said that they've seen things. Yes, sir, they have. And uh, so there are NASA employees, NASA first-hand astronauts, space travelers, star travelers, uh, of earthly origin, of, 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 you know, who are, who are humans, who are of our consciousness and intelligence, who are admitting that, that there is much more. You bet. One of the most compelling shows, Art, that you ever had on was the night that you played the uh, 911 calls in Liberty uh, County, Ohio. I Remember agree. That? Oh, of course I do. That was a fantastic show because you had, and you went with it, because you played 45 minutes of these cops chasing UFOs, uh, you know, all over the countryside. Yes. Culminating with the guy climbing up in the water tower and seeing four of them go over his head. Incredible. It, it, incredible. Didn't, need, yeah, it didn't need comment. We just laid it out on the air. You could hear it for yourself. It was beautiful. It was it was just vivid and wonderful. And, you know, it's that, that type of And as just a blanket sort of anybody who comes up to me and says, well, how can you believe in, in, in ghosts, in the supernatural, in the paranormal? What, what proof is there? I say, well, go to Marfa, Texas. Oh, yes. The Marfa go to Lakes. Alpine and go 30 miles west of Alpine and park your car at the state-certified paranormal mystery parking lot because <laughs> the state of Texas has right there Marfa Mystery Lights and gives you a little table and a chair and place to pull your RV over and watch those lights and they appear 
every night between dusk and dawn, and they hop around, they change colors. I've sighted them with an infrared viewer. I've seen them with the naked eye. I've had people with me. The thing is, there's nothing out there to produce them. There's no gas. There's no, it's not a car. It's not a generator. It, but they're there. They're there. And that is a, a true paranormal mystery and one recognized by the state of Texas. Well, and, and, and by the way, uh, here in Nevada, to give ourselves a plug, we've got something called the Extraterrestrial Highway. Recognized by the state of Nevada. That's right. Yeah. That's great. almost hit a cow there a couple of years ago on a motorcycle <laughs> going up to the uh, little alien. Oh, yes. Oh, you've been there. I've been to, yeah, I've been to Rachel, seen the mailbox. And what is great about the little alien is you go into the corner... As you're eating your burger and having your milkshake, and with all of the fine people there, Pat and everybody, on the wall is just the, the most vivid and spectacular collection of home-assembled uh, photos of UFOs. Mm -hmm. You know, people just, uh, they, they tack these photos up, and they've been coming from all over the world for years, and, and there's a great, great display there that kind of rivals the one in, in, uh, at the Roswell Museum. Well... I think, personally, that um, that this is all very obvious to my listeners, to the two of you, to myself, uh, and I think that you're right. I, I think that the Brookings Institution study is still in force, and I believe that at the highest levels in this country, they've determined that uh, this information cannot get out, simply cannot get out. And I, I don't know, with shows like mine, with shows like the one you've got coming, uh, Dan, and the information you've got, David, uh, if it's really this serious, they're not going to really let this get out, not to the point where there's a public epiphany, you know, and everybody suddenly realizes that it really is true. They're just not going to, they can't let it happen. Well, thanks to, thanks to people like you and Dan, that you guys have, have had the courage to open these doors and and let people know, and that's why so many people stay up so late at night just to hear this because they want to know the truth. Well, Dan, how do you, uh, there are uh, stars in Hollywood that lend themselves to political uh, points of view or uh, whatever. You, you've done something else entirely here. You're lending your voice, your celebrity, to this cause. Uh, so you must feel awfully strongly about it. Well, I I, I do. I, I I like truth to be told, and. Um... You know, there, there's foul. Oh, there are thousands and thousands of people out there who, uh, around the world, who've who've been uh, taken, and that, we we haven't even gotten into that phenomenon to the work of Bud Hopkins and, and John Mack, and um, you know, you you can't. And, and these are people from all walks of life. And um, you know, Herb Shermer, the uh, highway patrolman in uh, Nebraska, who went aboard a ship. Oh yes. And spoke of that. Uh, Barney and Betty Hill, the Allagash guys, uh, the Pascagoula guys, uh, the Hopkinsville incident, incident. You know, these people told their friends, and their friends told their friends, and so there, there are people out there who know. Uh, are you pretty well convinced, uh, Dan, that that these are uh, these creatures have have our best interests? Uh, at heart, or you know, there's people like Dr. David Jacobs who who write that they may not be what we think they are, and those who come back, you know, from these uh, uh, kidnappings or these uh, abductions may have. Hello, you guys. Yes, hello. Oh, sorry, I had uh, my my handset cut out here. So. Oh, okay, okay. Are you familiar with the work of Dr. Jacobs? 
Dr. David Jacobs? Um, I'm not sure. Okay, well, he's it's simple. He doesn't think these are such friendly features at all, and he thinks those who have been abducted have been uh, brainwashed, and he said we should be very, very cautious. Now, you obviously seem to think they're pretty friendly. Only, well, the ones that David writes about, the, 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 the Syrian theory, theory they're, they're, those are benevolent species. I believe that there are non-benevolent ones at all, and I think that... I think there are probably training programs underway uh, at certain levels of the military, mm -hmm. and there should be uh, with a defensive stance. Now, Stephen Greer says that we should not be developing the missile defense shield. We should not be developing space-oriented weapons at all because they, I guess, will act as a deterrent to these species coming down to try to make contact. But I... Um, well, Dr. Greer, I think, it, I think it helps to have something in reserve. Dr. Greer thinks we're crazy to be developing space-based weapons systems, and he thinks we've been shooting at these things. Well, there is that footage, uh, David, uh, that you showed me of of uh, mm -hmm. of, of some kind of a high-speed uh, craft coming towards Earth, mm -hmm. and then uh, a beam comes up from the planet from Earth. Mm -hmm. And it misses it, and then the thing makes the right angle turn and kind of yeah, slides I, away. Yeah, I actually have a lot of research, and I didn't go into it in this investigation, of what are known as ultraviolet uh, light weapons, which would attack them in their frequency. But uh, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Technology, um, a wealth of information um, in that agency as to the most advanced defense uh, capabilities we have, I'm very well aware of. The uh, the footage that uh, Dan just talked about, is that in your... Yeah, the, we have several incidents in this documentary. Um, the tether well, is only one. You see a beam one. come up. Yeah, you actually see a beam come up. I'm familiar with it. Yeah, there's it, a it, lot it. of things. We've got a, a gathering over, uh, over Africa of about eight or nine UFOs gathering in a circle. We have a UFO manifesting from another dimension. We've got a UFO that I'm able to calculate speed on it over 900,000 miles an hour, moving over the curvature of the Earth and disappearing on the horizon. We have a high-speed, uh, nearly 90-degree turn, which is something that just baffles uh, physicists' minds. There's an incredible amount of footage and investigation and, and a lot of, uh, of compelling uh, uh, theories and arguments going along with each piece of footage. All right, and, and uh, this is available again uh, at a phone number right now. Uh, I presume now? Right now, yeah. Okay. For twenty four ninety five, a two video set, it's one eight seven seven UFO NASA. This is the this is the real thing. Now incidentally, this the Brookings Institution was an American uh sponsored document and in Europe, in Belgium, you know, you had the Air Force general on there talking about his F fifteens chasing craft that were going seventy five hundred miles an hour. Uh, there there doesn't seem to be this uh blanket uh, denial in the public relation me mechanisms of, of many European governments. There's people who are quite open in the uh, the French has, have just come out with a large disclosure uh, project there over the last couple of years. Even the Mexicans, Dan, they've had collisions with UFOs out of Mexico City. Right. And they talk about it. Uh, yeah, they talk about it. Yeah. No, we don't. And the Brazilian uh, um, defense guy there who was uh, in the last couple of years speaking about... Uh, his activities and his studies and the investigations that he undertook. Well, listen, you two, we're, we're out of show. We're out of time. Boy, that went fast. <laughs> that, was, that was three hours. Boom, just like that.
Well, we've got to do it again sometime. And, uh, Art, if I can convince you to come to New York City, I'd love to have you on my show. And I've got to get out to the high desert because I, I need a good dose of that pure, beautiful air and that great, endless sky. Dan, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, my friend. David, good night. Good night. Night. Thank you, Art. Yep. Good night, all. All right. There you have it. David Sarita, Dan Aykroyd. I'm Art Bell from the high desert. <laughs> it is really happening, you know. Ta-ta. I'm free, I'm free.